0: I believe that there's no blueprint in life. You can say, my father did this, or you can look at one of your mentors and say, if I follow that person's path, then I'm guaranteed success. This on, If I make the same investments that Warren Buffett made, then I'm going to be a billionaire too. The problem is you're not Warren Buffett. Okay? You're not that person. And there have never been no two lives on the face of this planet that are the same. So everybody's life cannot pattern after somebody else's life. Hey
1: everybody, this is Driven By with Sam Coates. On this podcast, you're going to hear people that see a need and they do something about it. You're going to hear what drives them, lessons learned along the way, how they built it and how things are evolving yet still today. It is great to have you on the show. For more information, go to podcast.sampcoates.com. That's podcast.sampcoats.com and subscribe to our weekly email list and check out my show on Twitter, Instagram at Sam P. Coates. This show can be downloaded wherever you get your podcasts at Driven By with Sam Coates. If you like the show, please spread the word, tell a friend and leave a review and check out previously recorded episodes. I hope you have a great day. My guest this week is United States Marine Sergeant Major Justin LaHue. This episode is the first of two conversations with Sergeant Major LaHue. The second one will be next week in the organization that he leads today. Sergeant Major LaHue has been awarded the Navy Cross and the Bronze Star. He is also known as the Hero of Nazaria for his work taking part in the 507 Maintenance Company's rescue operation, including Jessica Lynch in 2003. I quote, under constant enemy fire, he led the rescue team to the soldiers. With total disregard for his own welfare, he assisted the evacuation effort of four soldiers, two of whom were critically wounded. LeHue's Navy Cross citation reads, in 2010, Sergeant Major LeHue was honored by the Marine Corps with an obstacle named in his honor at Paris Island, South Carolina, called LeHue's Challenge. Every recruit, both male and female, hear from their drill instructors about the heroism displayed by then Gunnery Sergeant LaHue. It was a privilege to have this conversation with Sergeant Major LaHue. We discussed topics such as why he from a young age knew he wanted to serve in the military, why the Marine Corps prepares you for any situation, what drives him personally, how our world and war is evolving today, why nothing new is under the sun lessons learned about building a family with a demanding calling while we're all equal as human beings and more. I hope you enjoy this week's episode and thank you to every person serving our country, protecting us, keeping us safe, and sacrificing your own life for our good. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Hey everybody, I'll just make this easy. Do you need insurance? Do you want another opinion about your insurance? Just go ahead and call Matt Haga with State Farm. It'll be easy. If you're thinking about it, just do it. We do have listeners to this show from all over the world, so this offers only for listeners in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Matt Haga State Farm offers auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance. Go to madhaga.com. That's M A T T H A A G A dot com and contact them. When you contact Matt, tell him I sent you. Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating. The last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today, or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. Now we're going to get back to the show. Sergeant Major LaHue, it's great to see you this afternoon. Thanks for coming on.
0: Thanks, Sam, for having me on. It's my distinct pleasure and honor to
1: be here. Yes, sir. Can you tell the story about when you were going to sign up for the Air Force, but that didn't work out. And can you tell the story about how you became a Marine?
0: Yeah, I was probably, uh, a lot of my buddies will always tell you that, you know, they wanted to be a Marine since they were five or they, they couldn't think of anything else about being a Marine. Well, I grew up in an Air Force household. My father uh, had retired from the U.S. Air Force. He was drafted into the Army during World War II and basically had to serve in the Army and served in the 29th Infantry that uh, crossed the beach on D-Day on Omaha on June 6, 1944. But uh, the story in the family was my dad couldn't get out of the Army fast enough in 1945, and he kind of became a civilian again like almost everybody else during that time period. It was, thank you for your service, but we no longer need millions of people in uniform. In 1945, they all got sent back to be civilians again. And he was working for the Chrysler Corporation in Baltimore in 1947, And went on a lunch break, Sam, and uh, saw, he said, a snappy guy walk out carrying a sign out of an office on his lunch break and he laid it in the street and it said, come join the brand new United States Air Force. And this was 1947. And he said, the guy, I remember the guy was wearing the uniform of an army soldier. He said, but he had different colored patches that I had never seen before. And he walked over, engaged in conversation. The recruiter, who we now know would be a recruiter, engaged in conversation with my dad, asked him his likes, dislikes, asked him what my dad was missing in his life. And he said, you know, uh, I always kind of wanted to go see Japan. I never got the opportunity to go see Japan. And the recruiter called him in the office, said, Why don't you come on in, sit down and talk to me? And uh, you know what? If you sign with the Air Force today, I can promise I'll send you to Japan. Right? And Sam, growing up in the military, recruiters should never be telling that to anybody. (laughs) And we all heard it somewhere, shape, or form if you just sign with me today, we'll make sure you get everything you ever want. And I said, What was the outcome? And my dad told me, Two weeks later, I was sitting in Yokohama Harbor in the United States Air Force in Japan, in post-war Japan. And those are the stories you don't hear. You always hear the stories about how my recruiter screwed me over and didn't get me what I wanted. He never went back to work with Chrysler that day. He just quit and walked in and signed with the Air Force. And two weeks later, they sent him to post-war Japan. That was on Stayed in the Air Force for a career. Retired as a master sergeant. That's how I kind of ended up near Ohio. My mother was from Ohio, and he was retiring out of an air base in Ohio. And they just went back and settled in my mother's hometown. And then roughly about six years after he was retired from the Air Force, I was kind of a retirement experiment, I guess, for a (laughs) 55-year-old guy that woke up one morning that probably had his wife go, surprise, I'm pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) And they didn't expect that. They came along. And in 1970, I came along. I had a great childhood growing up. You know, flash forward, twenty. you know, I was 17 years old. I really wanted to join the Air Force. I signed up for the Air Force. And I was sent to do medical exams for the Air Force. And a major came in one day, called out my name in a big auditorium, asked me to step outside. And he said, uh, I'm really sorry, son, that we made some mistake on your paperwork. We thought you had color vision and you're colorblind. And I said, I don't understand what that means. And he said, well, what that means is of the 402 jobs that you were qualified for in the Air Force, we can now only offer you two. And those two were not the jobs I wanted. Sam, I wanted to be close to, I wanted to load up F-16s to go into combat. I wanted to do things that were like that. And he said one of them was an airframe specialist, and I wish he would have sold the job better at that time period because all he said when I asked him what that was, he said, well, they basically give you a rubber mallet. And when the airplane comes back from combat, you beat out the dents or fix the (laughs) aircraft. And I was like, that's not what I want to do. Uh, Little did I know that airframe specialists in the civilian community makes 100 or 200 bucks an hour to do that kind of a job. I was like, wow, you could have really helped me out there, brother. Uh, And the other one was, he said, pharmacist. And I looked at him and I said, how can that possibly be? I'm colorblind. Aren't those pills all kind of different colors? I might actually kill somebody. So I didn't want to do that. And I felt sorry for myself. I'm now my dream of joining the Air Force is over because I'm not going to join to do something I did not intend to do. And I kind of walked around the streets of Columbus, Ohio, Sam, trying to figure out the age of 17 years old, what I'm going to do with my life. I went and slept on some park benches. I talked to some bums in the street on how, you know, did you try to get into the Air Force and they told you you were colorblind too and that's why you're here? And the next thing was I walked back over to the station that was responsible for me. And as I was sitting there, I saw a man walk up to me and I had my head down and I saw he was wearing a set of blue trousers with a red stripe that ran down the side. And as I my eyes went from his shoes all the way up, he had asked me a question and he had said, What the hell is wrong with you? You look like you just lost your favorite dog. And I went to say something to him. And he said, I'm going to stop you right there. That's not how it works with me. You get on your feet when you talk to me. And I was like, wow, I never heard somebody say that before. I got up. I looked at him. He was a U.S. Marine. And he said, now that you've actually gave me the appropriate respect of getting on your feet to actually have a conversation with me, what just happened? And I explained to him everything I just did to you, Sam. And uh, he said, look, I'm sorry it didn't work out for you in the Air Force. And do you mind if I give somebody a phone call? (laughs) He saw me as a target of opportunity, right? Said, do you mind if I give someone a phone call in your hometown to sit down with you and talk to you about your future? And Sam, I, I hate to tell you, my high school guidance counselor didn't even give me that much time to do that. So absolutely, I went back to Columbus Grove, Ohio. I was sitting there and that week, The Marine recruiter knocked on my mom's door, and gleefully, she opened up the door, and she said, you're too late. He joined the Air Force and slammed the door right in his face, and he walked away. Tuesday, same recruiter came back to the house, opened up the door, and she said, what is it with you? I just told you he joined the Air Force and slammed the door again. Wednesday, the knock happens again there's the same Marine recruiter and says, ma'am, can I come in and talk to you about opportunities in the United States Marine Corps for your son? And she was like, you know, that's the problem with you Marines. You don't listen. Because my, my brother was a Marine in Guadalcanal. My other brothers were all in the military during that time. I know what Marines do. We are an air force family. I don't want my son exposed to that kind of, What she was trying to save Sam was that kind of viciousness in combat, that kind of ferocity, the Spartanistic lifestyle, the you're always going to live in the dirt. You're going to eat the worst food. You're going to not have as much ammunition as somebody else. You're going to be sent to the most shittiest country around the world to fight for wherever the United States is going to have you, where you could be uh, in the Air Force and you're going to have good... Food and and you're going to live in in air conditioned facilities and and my mom was a kind of a duty expert she saw all that and it, and, and you know what she kind of looked at her son and I don't blame her she wanted the best for her son but she didn't really know what her son wanted for himself and I didn't want to live in air conditioned facilities Sam I didn't want to be 400 miles away loading up ammunition. And watching somebody else go off to do the fighting and then come back from that and refit and re knock out whatever it was that was in there. I wanted the harshness. I wanted the discipline. I wanted everything that she was trying to dissuade me from. It's exactly what I wanted as a kid. And that Marine recruiter was the way to give me that. So she eventually opened up the door when he came back the fourth day, Sam. And she said, she looked at me and said, Justin, what the hell did you do? And I said, you better let him in the house. <laughs> and I didn't have the Wibos to tell her that what happened with me in the Air Force that was here. But Sam, I was still 17 and I needed her signature to be in the military. And the Marine recruiter sat us down. He didn't try to sell a sales pitch, didn't do anything that was here. And after about three hours, she looked over at me, Sam, and said, so this is what you want to do with your life? You want to throw it away in the Marines, huh? And I said, yes, ma'am. That's exactly what I want to do. And I don't think I'm throwing my life away by serving my country to do that. And she pulled the papers over toward her, Sam. And she had tears in her eyes. And she signed the papers. And she said, after he graduates from high school, he is all yours. Uh, And she looked over at me and she said, you're going to get everything you ever expected and more. You have no idea what you just did. It was here. And when I was 18 years old and I graduated almost a week after graduation, I shipped off to Paris Island, South Carolina. 13 weeks, I became a United States Marine. I knew I had found the family I was looking for. I knew you are where you were supposed to be in life, and different intersections make you that way. And more importantly, Sam, my mother came to my graduation. When I walked off that parade deck as a U.S. Marine, And the tears in her eyes, Sam, was no longer you made a bad decision in your life. The tears in her eyes were, I can't believe what I'm looking at. I can't believe the transformation of my son in 13 weeks to do this. And for the rest of her life, Sam, she became the most proud mother of a United States Marine. She didn't talk about the Air Force anymore. She didn't brag to all of her friends about the Air Force. It was... Everywhere she went or anytime I visited my hometown, I would hear back from people about how your mother is so proud of you wearing that uniform and and how she is just so proud of what it is, the man that you have become. And she can't stop doting on you as a son about the decisions you made in less than a year before that, Sam. That same woman was, you're throwing your entire life away. This is not the direction I want you to go. But even my mother, when I came home from the Marines, even in everything that told her that she shouldn't feel like that, what it was that she saw was counter to that narrative. And she then went on and opened up her mind to say that these opportunities that I never thought my son would ever have because of what happened in his life are now being presented to him in a different uniform. And now I'm seeing my son achieve more than I ever thought he could have ever been possible. And to see that look on my mother's face made me never regret the decision that I ever had to make in life. And Sam, it also made me never feel sorry for myself in life for the things along your path in life that doesn't work out the way that you want them to work out to. And sometimes in life, even when that doesn't work out, you just don't know where you're going to go the next day in life with that. But when you really open your eyes to that aspect of what that change can actually provide you in a different way, you find out that what that just did was open up more doors than the other one did in your life. And I wouldn't be sitting here today having the opportunity to have this great discussion with you or to meet, meet you in general if those really jacked up things didn't happen on earlier in my life, that there was those challenges thrust upon me. You basically say, okay, this has not happened to you, so what are you going to do now, young man? You can't just sit here with your head in your hands because life is going to come at you. What's the decision you're going to make? And I made a decision that opened up a door that basically charted a path for the rest of my life that I would never take back a single moment of what happened.
1: Did you actually sleep in the park on a bench like overnight?
0: I did. I actually sat out there. It was the first time... I was really in a large city like that. Uh, I came from a really small hometown that maybe you would visit a city like that once a year. You went on vacation with your parents or you got to go to Disney World or something, but it wasn't everyday business to ever go to travel to that kind of a city. And you certainly were never in that size of a city by yourself when you were 17 years old and not with your parents. And when that situation presented itself, And you have to put some distance between whatever it was that just happened to you to get yourself some think space to clear your head. My think space was I got to walk out of these doors and just go for a really long walk and try to figure out what just happened. And that really long walk took me through some of the worst parts that no human being probably should have ever walked through on their own at midnight in a city like that. And I sat on those park benches with people that were using newspaper to stay warm at night. It was here. And I actually sat down and had conversations with them because they looked at me and they instantly knew I wasn't supposed to be there. And then I instantly started talking with them and trying to find out the reason that they were there. You know, some of them were sitting there like, you've got a bright future in life, son. I got to talk to you for 30 minutes or whatever. You know, they were the ones that talked me back into walking into that building and go, go back over there because there's more for you over there than there is on these park benches in life. And these were people that for one way, shape, or form, their path in life took them to those park benches. And when everything was probably telling them I can roll him for a few dollars in his pocket I can probably get something out of here. A majority of the people on those benches, Sam, looked at me and said, you need to take your little butt back over into there because your lifeline's not written yet. You can still make these choices. This isn't the worst thing that just happened in your life. And I took things from these people who talked to me on those benches and kind of, pulled my pants up and and got my spine erect again and said, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Go back over there and make a difference. And that's what I did, Sam.
1: So then you went back to the Air Force office. You're sitting there. They gave you those two positions, those two options. But before you could even talk to him about that, the Marine was there and he lit into you.
0: They gave me those options, Sam, before I ever walked out of the building. And that's when I told them, if these are the only options that you're giving me as the air force, I'm sorry, I can't do those. I'm not going to be a pharmacist. I'm not going to be, it's just not what I felt I was meant to do. And then that's when I walked out and that's when I talked to the people in the park. Right. And then they are actually the ones that told me, get your butt back in that building. Cause they're going to be looking for you now. And when I went back in that building, that is when that Marine showed up. And that's the person at that point changed my life.
1: And he just happened to be there.
0: And he just happened to be walking through that morning. He didn't know that I walked away from the Air Force. He probably didn't know that the Air Force was panically looking for me for the past few hours (laughs) because they don't know where I'm at. And then I walked in, Sam, and that's the first thing I saw was that guy with blue trousers and a red stripe. It helped me kind of get on the path where I'm at today.
1: Yes, sir. I know you played baseball, and I know you've talked about how great of a town you grew up in in Ohio. But I've also heard you talk about being a Marine and that lifestyle. And I heard you talk about your mom and how she described it and laid it out. Were you a fighter growing up? Were you a rough kid? What inside of you knew that that's the life that you wanted?
0: I really wasn't. I I can tell you a couple of distinct things. I played football one, you know, junior high. I came from a school, Sam, that the school was so small that you had to play sports that nowhere else in the world would you have ever been allowed to play on any of those teams. But if you didn't play, they wouldn't have a sports team. So there's no reason a five foot five kid should ever be playing basketball, maybe in his entire life, but I had to play basketball or else they didn't have enough guys to actually put a team on the court. Football was the same thing. I'm a five foot six kid. Why am I playing quarterback for a team at at five foot six when I can't even see over the line when they're actually bent over to do what they're doing, but it's what you had to do. Baseball, I kind of grew up as a young kid from five years old. It didn't matter how tall you were, how fast you were, anything else. Baseball was kind of available for everybody. And we all played that as kids. So I got really good at doing that, catching and throwing a ball against a wall or a tennis ball. Or basketball was a good thing because I could go out and shoot hoops by myself. And actually, you know, I didn't have to have somebody in my face that was taller that's going to reject the basketball. So you'd make up for these certain skills you didn't have. And in high school, you had to be on the team so that the team could have a team, which taught me even then. We need your contributions, no matter what skills you have, in order to have something to begin with. And the Marines didn't teach me that. Later on, I learned that all the members of a fire team come from different backgrounds and a squad of Marines. They're black, they're white, they're Puerto Rican Jew, they're six feet tall, they're five foot five. But the Marines had a phenomenal way of looking at who you were, teaching you certain things to make up for the shortfalls that you layered on yourself. To say that even with those shortfalls, here is what we're going to expect from you to be a part of this team, and those aren't shortfalls we're looking at; they're actual enhancements. There is some things you can do with it at five foot eight that a six foot seven guy can't do. There are certain things and places you can get in and out of faster at one hundred and forty five pounds than a guy who's three hundred and twenty pounds. And the Marines looked at everybody and said we don't look at you as a liability we look at you as an enhancement and here's what we can do for this or sports kind of took that in the other extreme form we at first look at you as a liability you can't do this or you can do this and then the coach looks at the opportunities that he's being presented with and then says here's the expectations of how i can feel this team and a lot of times they have to maneuver a lot of members on this team because you're the square peg that they're trying to force into a round hole. Uh, In your life, you found out your coaches took a really good interest in you just like the Marines did. And they said, in order for us to achieve the results we're going to need to achieve rather than forcing the square peg into the round hole, we're going to try to find out and shave the outside of that down to see if we can fit more of the round peg in the round hole to help for the greater good of everything. And I found that growing up in that small little town and also what the Marine Corps was trying to layer on top of you, Sam, was not so far apart with what the expectations were.
1: Can you talk a little bit about with your father? I know you said he stormed the beaches of Normandy. He's a hero. Can you talk about him going back to Chrysler but then how that didn't satisfy or that didn't fulfill him. And then he, he went to the Air Force. Can you talk about either with his life or maybe your own life in our military where you're drawn to a certain space and you're not made for really anywhere else? And if you're not there, you're not fulfilled.
0: Sam, I think it's a really great question because my father passed away when I was 13. So we never really got the chance to sit down to have a lot of the conversations like you and I are having about the why of anything. I just knew my father was in World War II. I just knew my father was in the Air Force. We never had the opportunity to sit down about the why any of that happened. So how this all really kind of ties into, after I started to wear the uniform of our own nation, and I started to grow in that capacity, and go through somewhat the same ranks that my father went through at certain ages, I'm dealing in a different generation with the same problems that my father dealt with, how to make a team work, or how to motivate somebody to do something that we need you to do today, that you may not want to do, or you don't think you have it in you. And we're talking about the 1940s, 50s, 60s. With him, well, the same motivators that make somebody want to work for somebody the same motivators that makes you want to be part of a team or gives me the why I want to go to work for this company or corporation today you will find out in the year 2020 are not many different motivators than in 1940, 50 and 60 relating to how they're being treated in their workplace how somebody made them feel that day that they were actually part of something bigger than themselves and i can only imagine as I grew up wearing the uniform of our nation, that when my father worked for Chrysler, he knew he was contributing to something. He knew he was contributing to the making of cars that provide the American family or anything else to hear. He also knew that he was contributing to a corporation that did great things for the war effort that helped him win the war against the Japanese and the Germans and the Italians and, and everybody else that was here. So he went back to work to put food on the table, as did everybody, because they had a responsibility to take care of American families. But as he's working assembly lines and as he's working everything else, even though I told you he could not get out of the Army fast enough in 1945, all of a sudden in 1947, two years later, Sam, something is not fulfilling to him, even though he's working on a team. He's building a product, and he's doing that. Knowing what I know now, after 31 years of wearing a uniform, he missed his buddies. He missed serving with people that gave everything else they had that was a comfortable lifestyle between 1941 and 1945 to go serve for their nation, to go produce. To go keep the Germans and the Japanese at bay so they didn't come here. And they didn't know how to figure any of that out. And he may not have been wanting to be in the army. Maybe he wanted to be in the Navy or something like that. But he grew where he was planted in the army. And he said, I have a responsibility to my nation and my buddies and my family to do my job as a soldier for 1941 to 45. And then the army said, After 1945, we can't have you in the Army anymore. And then he said, okay, that's a given. I can't work here anymore. So then he went for two years and did what he could do to put food on the table. And then he found out when he saw that uniform, that one day on lunch break, and he said, that's not the Army. That's something different. And sitting down with that young man in Baltimore, Maryland for an hour or two, I can only imagine, whatever it was that he said, I can fill this void that you're missing, made my father put his name on a paper and give up everything at that point and say, okay, I'll go do what you want me to do. And then that gave him what he was missing for 20, the next 26 years of his life that helped define who we grew up with as kids and couldn't really understand what it was. My father and my mother was trying to teach me. But that was the makeup of who we were. My brothers and sisters, I was the only one that went on to join the military. But every single one of my brothers and sisters, Sam, has looked back and said, even though I was around when my father was in the military and I wasn't, there are times in their life that they look back and said, I wish I would have been, had the opportunity. To serve in the Army, the Navy, or something like that, because they're older now. And they now have the hindsight is 20, 20 when they're 40, 50, and 60. And I think even they get there's something different about you, Justin, and there was something different about dad, too. And all of us who never had the opportunity can't fill in the blanks of why that's different. But watching you grow up as a young man reminds us a lot of when we were kids watching our father. And what those intangible things were, Sam, that was, I don't know what that is, but there's something different. And I want some of that. And that's what the military couldn't give me. We see that in you. And watching my older brothers and sisters speak to me with a level of respect and reverence that I never experienced when I was growing up, that was because of what the U.S. Marine Corps gave me.
1: Can you talk about tenacity, persistence? When you were on the park bench and the homeless people, you talked about how they pushed you back to go back to the Air Force office. Talk a little bit about that and how you've seen that play out throughout your life, even to what you're doing today, and even with the Marine Corps recruiter that kept coming. I don't even know how long he would have kept coming back, but what did that teach you about tenacity, perseverance, and when you kind of know the deeper why? You just, you don't stop, even with your dad doing what he had to do to go to work for Chrysler for two years, but then he gets back in the Air Force.
0: Uh, The tenacity of that, Sam, is absolutely, it was ingrained into me from a very young person that quitting was not an option. Uh, Quitting a job is always an option that's out there. Quitting a calling is never an option. And I have found out that when you have callings in life, those are the most difficult tasks in life that aren't so clear with how you're going to accomplish that calling that is out there. Uh, but you just know there's something telling you, stay on this path, stay a little longer, make a few more adjustments, keep passionately driving towards what it is that you believe you have the drive, discipline, desire, and motivation to do, where others don't see it that same way. Those people on the heart taught me that even in the aspect of where everything else tells you to give up hope, that there was always hope. And even those people are saying that we don't have the tools to do what you do. In other words, you can always be us any day of the week that you want. All you have to do is give up on your dreams. All you have to do is stop working. All you have to do is do drugs. All you have to do is not do this. And you can always be one of us living on this park bench. That's what it taught me at the age of 17. There's not a lot of effort that it took for you to just pull up some of these papers, find your own park bench, and call over here. But in order to do that, you're going to have to give up everything in your life that you ever wanted to do or you thought you were going to amount to because this is the easy way out. Okay? And none of those people were 17, 18, and 19, Sam. They were really old. And certain I wanted to know you didn't start out like this. So how was it that led you to here? And they were very freely, you know, some of them were alcoholics, they were drugs, they were, you know, I lost my 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 wife divorced me after this amount of years to do this. And they were all these stories that even at the age of 17, I really didn't walk away feeling sorry for anybody that was there. What they actually taught me was. You're going to feel sorry if you don't do what it is that you're being called to do. And what I was being called to do at the time was from a very young kid, I knew I want to wear the uniform of this nation. And I just thought it was going to be a certain uniform, Sam. It's the same way that kids grow up and they want to play football for the University of Texas. They can't imagine playing football for anyone else. (laughs) They wanna run out of that tunnel wearing a Longhorns uniform. And then all of a sudden they find out that they can't get a scholarship for the University of Texas. But their dream of playing football is still alive. And these five other colleges offered them the opportunity to still live that dream. And now they have to say, was my dream really running out of the tunnel for the University of Texas, or was my dream actually running out of the tunnel Wearing that football uniform and doing my best on that field to do whatever it is, and that might be for Fordham University or some community college or something that still said, "I have a calling to do that and just because this door closed doesn't mean I can't still do it. You hear of all these people, Sam, that 62 years old and they went back, they never had a college degree, and they've made millions. Or they had a trade and they lived this, but that one calling was, I never had the opportunity to go get a bachelor's degree. And you see them. You see them every year in all these universities around the world. Somebody 93 years old gets that certificate. They didn't have to do it. They led a good life. They did this. There was a calling that they said, I still have that drive, but for now I have to put that on hold in order to do this. And eventually, when I do all that, I still have the dream of doing this. And I have seen numerous things online that tells you everything that you ever wanna know about a person. It's when you hear about a 56 year old guy who just made the football team on some division three school (laughs) to only play a couple of periods or to do whatever, because they wasn't good enough at the age of eighteen to go play football, they went on to do this life and they wanted an educational opportunity. so they went in the military for twenty five years. Then they went to work for here, and then one day they woke up and said, "I think I'm going to red shirt as a freshman, and I'm going to walk on this small college and I'm going to actually play football. Everything in life tells that person, do not do that. Everything in life from their own family says." Grandpa, don't do that. You're not the same as 17 or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you read in the newspaper, you see some photographs, Sam, of the football team. And here's a 58 year old with a jersey holding a helmet going, I'm going to play defensive safety for some little college down in TCU or something like this. And then you always watch later and watch for the coach's interview because. The next thing when that university makes that announcement, that coach is going to be front and center and a bunch of news media is going to go, why in the hell have you ever done that? And you always hear the coach say something like this. What that individual brings to this team is something that no one else could have ever replicated. The speeches that this individual gives in the locker rooms before the pregame motivates me as a coach to go out to continue to do what it is that's here. The Opportunity to have this individual on the sidelines, motivating 19, 20, 24, 36 year olds that are here. It's not the playing time that that guy has to have on the field, it's the accessibility to have that guy on the sidelines for any one of those kids going through any challenge on that gridiron that day to be able to walk out when they know they failed on that play. The coach just yelled at me. They're sitting on a bench, they threw their helmet. Imagine having a 56-year-old guy get off the other end of that bench and walk over and go, "Son, this is not going to be the worst day of your life." <laughs> Trust me. What just happened out there may be insignificant in the context of what here. And maybe the coach yelling at you today is trying to make you a better person, to energize you to put your damn helmet back on your head and go out there and be something better than what you can actually just show. That you did there, that guy don't even have to step foot on that football field, a single quarter of the entire season. But what it is, it's almost like having this extra coach and this extra mentor and leader that the coaches can't do that throughout the entire time. But that kid can go sit on the end of that bench and feel sorry for themselves any given time next to another guy wearing a helmet, wishing I could get into a play. But the conversation they're going to have over the next minute is a conversation that that coach could never replicate in a locker room on, why do you feel the way you do? Why did you miss that tackle? Well, you know, my grandmother, I just got told before I ran out of the tunnel today that my grandmother who raised me has stage four cancer. And I'm worried about I'm going to get home to ever be able to see her that's here. Wow, Sam. Do you think that may affect that kid's playing ability on a playing field that day that the coach may or may not have known? Absolutely, it is. And all of a sudden, now he just told that to somebody else that said, That's not me. I'd never miss that tackle out there. But here's what I got going on in my head today. Okay, I'm going to walk up, <laughs> I'm going to walk down the sideline to the coach and say, Coach, you got a second? I know it's a big game out here today, but you know what? Put number 54 back in the game today because the best thing you can do actually not leaving him over on the bench, throw him back out there on the football field and give him some challenges because here's what he's got in his head going on today. And he's going to make you proud, man. He needs you. He needs to do that. And then in the corporate world, Sam, where people are discounted, you're an employee, you're only an hourly wage worker, or we're going to hire you for two months to work at J.C. JCPenney's to get us through the Christmas holiday. You're not really a member of the family that's here. We only need to do this. Imagine if the shift worker on that floor just walks out that day and actually says, so what's going on in your life today? How's things going with your family that's here? And takes a personal interest in that individual that's on that I have found out in life, Sam, the tangibles that you get back, whether it's a soldier on the battlefield, a Marine, whether it is a JCPenney worker that's trying to get through the Christmas season, or whether it's that football team trying to win on the gridiron that day, just that little bit extra time that you take to actually ask another person how you doing today. Or is there anything that I can do for you today to help make today just a little bit better? You really find that your bottom line in all those three situations goes through the roof, whether it's a financial one in a corporate world, it goes through the roof. They want to work harder for you. They want to stay with your corporation longer. Why? Cause you're, they're a valued member. That person cares about me. They actually asked me how it was today in the football field. Room, you miss that tackle today or anything else, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. Get out there and try harder tomorrow to do this. And the military aspect is, I want to have you on the battlefield tomorrow more than anybody else that's here that I can find. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that you are 100% body, mind, and spirit to get out there to do the job that this nation needs you and requires you to do with a very whole heart. Because in every one of those situations, That could be the worst day in that person's life. And all it takes is somebody to say, today's not the worst day that's going to happen. Let's get over the hump. Let's get back out there and give it the best that you can be. Uh, And I found in all three situations, whether it's military, whether it's academia, or whether it's the corporate world, all three of those scenarios apply to how you can train, educate, motivate, and mentor people along the path to produce results that will achieve greater expectations than you will ever have imagined as a manager or a leader in any of these organizations.
1: How did you conduct or operate your life and still do this on a day-to-day basis? I know you enlisted 18, you retired 31 years, Sergeant Major, Navy Cross, Bronze Star, and now you run History Flight. What are the things that you did practically to get up and be ready to roll every day, whether you felt like it or not, where you inspired the people under you, where you motivated people, where you're assessing people, but then you're also, you're learning, you're reading. Before we even started recording, we talked a lot about, talked about history, talked about books, talked about reading. It never seems like you settled. What have you learned and what are you still doing and what are you learning about waking up, being ready to roll, taking care of business before being prepared to try to see the best in others, motivate them, encourage them, and make sure you tackle the the task at hand?
0: That's a great question, Sam, because I believe that there's no blueprint in life. Everybody's life from flash to bang till the end, till you go in the grave, regardless how you get there, You can say my father did this, or you can look at one of your mentors and say, if I follow that person's path, then I'm guaranteed success. If I make the same investments that Warren Buffett made, then I'm going to be a billionaire, too. If I invest in the same thing that's here, the problem is you're not Warren Buffett. Okay, You're not that person. And there have never been no two lives on the face of this planet, even twins, that are the same. So everybody's life cannot pattern after somebody else's life. And I am a firm believer that in the context of your lifeline, Sam, that it isn't a race to do all this good stuff here so I can just then do this other stuff in my 50s, 60s, and 70s, or I can sit on a boat later and just relax, or I can do this, or the best years of my life are behind me, or I don't have anything else to look forward to. I truly do believe that every day something new is written in your lifeline. And in that context of your lifeline, you can make a different contribution at this period in your life to the greater good of humanity that you may not have had those skills. You may not have had the time. You may have had something to do in the previous years that was here. And I also, the root of everything is, Sam, that. No matter who you are, you never know any given day of the week who's watching you out there. You never know who that is. And, and you know, that may be an old high school buddy of yours that now you're all in your 50s. And their life didn't work out the same way that your life worked out. But in their head, they went to school with you. You know what I'm saying? Yes, sir grew up with the same teachers. We did this. So why did Justin's life turn out different than my life to do that? You know, there's that why that Simon Sinek talks about. What's the why that was there? But I also have a seven-year-old grandson that is never going to be able to remember seeing his grandfather ever serve a day in uniform. My daughter can remember that like it was yesterday. My wife can. Everything else that was here the time that I can give my grandson now and talk about life experiences him and expose him to different things is not the same time I could give my daughter for all those years that I grew up and I was gone. And there were certain periods of time that you had to rely on other people to cover those periods when you were gone, whether it's your wife, or I had the luxury of having a wife that served in the uniform of the United States Navy for 22 years. And at a, at a more advanced age, She went on to go through corpsman school so she could serve as a combat medic, so to say, serving with U.S. Marines to do that. Very few women in the world have ever done that. Most of them are about 19 and 20 years old that do that. They're not 36, 37, and 38 trying to go through that time period in their life to earn the qualification to be a Navy corpsman, a medic so that she can stay with her husband and serve with the Marines to do that. And my daughter got to watch all of this. So you're sitting there going on any given day of the week, what is my drive? What is it that makes you look up every day in the morning and go, haven't you given enough? The world's not going to look at you and say that if you took a rest today, that you're a bad person. Can't you just kind of do this? I keep saying every night I go to bed, Sam. Did I do my family name? And did I do the best I could do today to make life better for somebody else on this planet? And if I did that, even one little thing, help out somebody, I never go to sleep with vices. I never go to sleep. I didn't accomplish everything that day I wanted to accomplish, by no means. But just because I didn't check off everything on the list that day, it didn't mean I failed that day. What it actually meant was. Did I try my best that day with everything I had at my fingertips to make someone else's life a better place today or to make an organization a better work environment or to make a product a better product that someone's going to use on the battlefield or or put tires on somebody's car like my dad did at the Chrysler building? And I truly do believe in and of that fact when you do that, you don't have to ask what's in it for me. What did I get out of it? Because you're going to find out that the intangibles that you get throughout the day of doing that for others will come back to you a hundredfold in fulfilling you in your heart in fulfilling you in your mind of helping someone who needed help that day at the expense of maybe you didn't get to do something you wanted to do that day, but you got to do these five other things. And that's five other things more than you got to do yesterday, but you didn't get to do six of them. But by giving up that sixth thing today, you gave somebody else that day something to check off of their bucket list that made them a success, made them feel good about themselves that day at the expense of your one thing. And then you got these five other things, Sam, that you didn't even know you were looking for along the way that when you lay your head down at night, that's like, man, I really feel good today. And then that same cycle, Sam, makes you get up at six, five, seven the next day and say, I'm going to give it my best today. And I'm going to go out to make a difference in someone's life and in this world. I don't know who it is today because I find out in and of that fact, somebody crosses your path that day that you were never looking for, that you never knew. Maybe you were just shirking work that day and you knew that, I'm not supposed to be doing this today. I'm taking an extra 15 minutes for lunch, and that's against what I was supposed to be doing. But you see somebody walk through the door in tears that day when you're having a Starbucks coffee, and they open up their laptop computer three tables away from you, and you just know something's not going on right in that person's life today. And you're sitting here going, I had the opportunity for an extra 15 minutes today. My life's pretty good. But before I walk out of this Starbucks, I'm going to go sit down with that person and go, is there something I can help you with today, young lady? You look like you're having a really bad time right now. And I found out in life, Sam, that you may not have the tools to help what it is that person is. Uh, But more importantly is maybe just by having a two-minute conversation with that person that you never even knew, you do find out that maybe you don't have the tools, but whatever story she's telling you that day, you find out in your own lifeline that I knew somebody that had that problem. And do you mind if I call that person up today and put them in contact with you? Because they may be able to help get you through exactly what you did. And Sam, it only took two minutes out of your day to do that. That may be the thing that changes that person's life for the rest of their life. And I have found out that that's my why. That was my drive. And my drive was just go out today to do a little bit better than you did yesterday. And at the end of the day, look at yourself in the mirror and say, did I make every effort that I had with the tools I had today to not only make my life better, make my family's life better, but to give a little bit back to what people have given me along the way? Because, Sam, I wouldn't be the person I am today if somebody didn't give me two minutes of their time along the way when I was feeling the same way that I thought at the age of 30, my life is over, or I didn't know how to handle that problem when I was 23 somebody walked up at that time, Sam, and they said, Hey man, you just don't look like yourself today. Or can I help with this? And they gave me two minutes of their time and Sam, that two minutes of their time, you know, I think there's a thing, you know, that was out there years ago that was called pay it forward. You know, like go through the Starbucks line. I'm going to buy $5 for the person behind me that doesn't even know who they are. and, to, and, and I'm not looking for their affection or anything. I'm gonna drive off without ever having met that person. But it's because somewhere, somewhere along the line, somebody did that for me. So I'm gonna take it today and I'm gonna pay that back a little bit. Sam, that's always been my drive since I was a little kid to just live up to my family name, do good for those who are on the left and right of you, look at another person as a human being first, before you ever layer anything on top of that individual, before you ever lay the color of their skin, before you ever lay that they're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're something like this, or you come from this part of the world, they come from that part of the world, or you have $55 million and they only have 55 cents. I was always taught to look at another human being first as a human being on this earth. And you are no better or no worse than that individual going through this context of life And that if you can just take a couple of minutes of your time throughout the context of your life, Sam, you find out you will never walk away from that position knowing how much of an effect that that had on that person. And you're probably never going to meet that person again in your life. But that night you can look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what? I took the time to actually do that today. So uh, if I can continue to replicate that every single day, when... I'm in assisted living, hopefully not when I'm 90 some years old, or I'm sitting here, and I don't have all these capabilities and this capacity that I may have had when I was 30, 40, 50, 60. Sam, even when I'm 98, there's something that I can do that day that helps the life of somebody else. And therefore, it has me wake up the next morning trying to do
1: the same exact thing. I'm thinking about in my personal life, the application of what you're saying. And now it's true. And I don't know the outcome or where it goes, but also know messages I've heard time and time again from people that I've had on this podcast and others. There's a sense of contentment. There's a sense of presence. There's a sense of others focused. And you're taking it one day at a time and you're trying to give it a hundred percent. And before we got on our time this afternoon, I, there was something I was looking at a couple months ago about getting involved with. And I'm, I'm personally kind of on this path and I don't know exactly where this path is going, but I feel the undercurrent that you've talked about, but I was like, that's just a distraction. And I was unsubscribe from it. I'll exit from mm-hmm. this communication because I can't say that I haven't figured out or I understand everything that you're talking about, but some of these things you 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 know when it's happening because you're living it and you feel it and you're just going down that path. And then there's joy in trying to serve. There's joy trying to use what you got to help somebody else. And also think about times in my life where I didn't serve somebody or I didn't handle something correctly. And it takes a while to try to get over that, uh, especially with the, the guilt that comes with it. I know that's part of being human, but my point is when you see the simplicity of what you're talking about, taking it one day at a time, and then you think about 31 years in the Marine Corps compounding just over and over again, and you start to see this beautiful story of, of service, of commitment, and, and how it just plays out. And I think oftentimes, either through education or through books or movies or articles, Forbes, Wall Street Journal whatever it might be, Ivy League, you you have these dreams and aspirations of being rich or owning some large company or becoming some famous doctor or whatever. But it seems like the people that create the most impact are the people that are taking it one day at a time. They're trying to take care of the people around them, trying to get the best out of them, trying to get up a little bit earlier, trying to take care of their family and just try to rinse and repeat day after day, and it adds up to something.
0: It's very beautifully said, Sam.
1: Well put. Well, thank you. Can you talk about when you've been given assignments, tasks, goals that are very difficult, very challenging, you don't know how it's going to get done, but you know you got to do it. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen that? play out in your life and what you've learned about it and how you continue to kind of face those things uh, where you are today.
0: Yeah. In the military, it's honestly very easy because you're actually given the tools to succeed at a very young age. You are. If you follow the military's blueprint on how they produce a soldier, sailor, airman, or Marine, when they all graduate, they're given a fundamental set of foundational skills to go out to still perform like anybody did in any generation before them that's there. Uh, And then your life experiences start layering on top of that to make you more comprehensive, more cohesive in a leadership role that's on there. And then there's these other, as you would say, distractors, right? Of, well, why did this guy end up in a brig in Leavenworth and you didn't? Uh, Why did you go on to do whatever? Those are the distractors, correct? Sam, that yes. crossed these two paths, when they were produced and they came out of the assembly line, the same product, then the distractors every day start seeping back in. This person here discounted the distractors. This person here got caught up with the distractors. Thereby, the path starts going this way. But in the military, if you continue to go down that path, that path is always built on this isn't about you. You need a team to accomplish this. And no one in warfare has ever single-handedly won a battle in and of themselves. It is always the collective team. The greatest companies and corporations that we have throughout the world were built as teams. They weren't built and don't survive today just because Henry Ford produced the Model T or made the assembly line because Henry Ford doesn't have an infinite lifespan. He's going to die. Okay, So whatever it was that Henry Ford gave has to be carried on and believed by people, even if it's his own bloodline, which a lot of times you find out that maybe your own bloodline don't have the faculties about them to carry that from generation to generation. So then there's where CEOs come in or it's still the Ford company, but we're going to hire this person, this person, and this person to help these people do that. And everywhere, it's a team concept to build on that product. The military just takes it to the 20th power because it's life and death. And they build you up to understand that you are your brother and sister's keeper. You never leave a dead or wounded comrade on the battlefield. And I grew up in the Marine Corps that there is no surrender. Uh, we will fight to the death. And, and then you kind of, as a civilian, people look at that and say, "Well, that's fanatical." You know, would I fight to the death if given a? No, it's you're not going to train somebody to fight to the death with only two weeks of knowing who that person is. You have to build that in them, and you have to make them believe in the why of that. And the military compresses that into a very short time span, because you may graduate boot camp or recruit training and be thrust into the trials of fire weeks from now, where a corporation would never put somebody on the marketing floor until they've given them this certain amount of skills to present to a company, or as a lawyer, you're never going to represent one of the partners in a law firm until after you have done X amount of courtroom hours, and no, you're not going to represent a $20 billion contract because of your exuberant youth that you have in here no matter how much your motivation is and we love you kid you're not arguing this case today cuz you just don't have what it takes to do that that's not the people telling you you're a bad person to do that that's the boss weighing the skills that they need same as a military leader so in the Jessica Lynch's case in the in those cases when you're getting the call Sam of You're getting called to go into a situation that you know that is a shitty situation to begin with. You know that bad things just happen, but they're calling on you to do that. So first of all, your confidence level should be they called on me to do this more than anybody else. So if you're lacking confidence in that circumstance, you should throw that out the window and not worry about that. You should only concentrate on the fact that they just asked you to perform this mission, which means they don't have time or they don't need to give you the why they chose you. Just rest assured they chose you. Now it's your job to take that and then prove that they made the right decision by doing that. And in the Jessica Lynch and everything else case, it is. There are American troops that are killed and wounded. They are of a different service than me. They are Americans that are there. And we do not know the situation that we're going to have when we actually go two miles ahead of what we're going to find. But understand, we already have the confidence that we're the right people to do it. We already have the tools to do that job, even though that we've never performed that job in that extreme circumstance to do that. And we also have the intelligence to make the assessments when we get there to report that back to the people who sent us there in the first place to say, here's the way the project is coming along right now. We never thought we'd come across this, this or this. Now, that doesn't mean I can't do this job. That means boss, do you have anything right now that you could add that's gonna enhance the situation that's gonna help this because you're not here. What I don't need from you is what's gonna hurt this situation even more I just need you to trust that I'm gonna make this decision, but I'm gonna ask you, have you ever seen something like this before? Almost 10 times out of 10 in a civilian environment, you can stop, you can breathe, and you can ask somebody around you, have you ever seen something like this before? Or what do you think about this certain thing that we're bringing to the project? Or what do you do? In a military hostile fire environment, You're not walking around asking 10 people out of 10, how would you handle this situation? You have to do it now. And you have to trust in your people to do that. And what gives you that, Sam, is the people on your left and right are trained the same way you are. They don't have the same skill sets, maybe. They didn't come from the same background to do that. But the basic fundamentals to be able to accomplish that mission today are in each and every person that are here. And we all know that we're going to have to pool our talents today to successfully complete this mission. Uh, the military teaches that better than anybody. The expectation of that is rooted in that. You will not go charge the machine gun nest by yourself. Well, that may be great today, and you may earn the Medal of Honor, and you're going to be dead later, and that may or may not have accomplished the mission that was here. But if you had just waited five seconds more, and we actually. Gave you back what you were looking for. We could have gave you a better product that said, you know, maybe if we come from this side, we could do that. And then there are times in life, Sam, that you don't have the time to even answer or ask one question to somebody. There's just something that day that tells you, I have to do what I have to do now. And I don't know why I have to do it, but I have to do it. And you have to go with your gut feeling on that. And a lot of times as a leader in business, you do have that all the time. I don't know why I feel the way I do. Everybody's telling me if I make this decision, it's going to go poorly. It's going to go here. But also, if I make this decision, is someone going to die today? Is it going to hurt someone on the assembly line? No, it's not. So I bounced that decision off of a few people. As a leader, I took everyone's input. And they respected that I made the decision I had to do. But the buy-in was I listened to all their input. And there's a respect to that. even with the people around the table that says, the boss didn't take my decision today, but I had a say in what it was, and they listened to me because I don't know the decision that they truly have to make today. I only know their little piece of the puzzle for why they asked me this today, and I have to trust that they took what I said, and they made the best decision humanly possible. A lot of times in the civilian world, that does equate to a bottom line, it equates to board of directors. It equates to stockholders that are on there. And those are influential decisions that have to be made. On the battlefield, it equates to whether somebody's going to live or die today, or that person's going to come home to see their family, Sam. And until you're thrown into the crucible in different variables, whatever generation that is, a lot of times those gut decisions, with the information you have, you don't have the why of what it is that makes you understand what it is you're about to do, but you're looking at everybody else who has the trust in you and you look at them and say, trust me, this is what we're going to do. That's a beautiful thing when a squad of Marines look at you and go, I don't have to know why he's telling me this today, but if he's the one saying it, then I'm freaking doing it because I trust that he's going to make the right decision. And in your own family every day, your wife, your daughter, your child or everybody else, looks at your own family to do that. We trust that he or she is making the right decisions for us today. Or my, you know what, you, you look at your own children and you're sitting here knowing that they're falling behind in school or something and they don't have the mental capacity that day as a six-year-old to grasp what the teacher's saying, what the parents are weighing or anything else. And you're actually sitting there after they walk out of the, uh, the room Sitting there with a with a parent and a teacher arguing whether or not that kid should be held back another year in school, and as a parent, you see this is what that's going to cost—not financially, like you and I talked about. Rarely are you really looking financially first in their in their growth in life, in where their peers are at or where they're going to be at years. know what that one year will cost, and then I can't just discount the teacher for what they're saying. I have to listen. Because I also know if I thrust my child well ahead of this power curve, it may damage them even more for what this actually costs. And you sit there and make the best decision you can with the information that you have. And then you rapidly execute that decision. Just like you told me and we uh, we talked about before when I asked you, you know, how, how'd you come up with wanting to be a podcast, did you come and broadcast and you do this? And you said, Sam, Justin, I don't know. I didn't have the background for that. But I just started to have this calling to do something like this and I couldn't answer these own questions to me and it didn't make sense when I was telling people around me why I wanted to do this, but I knew I had to do it. And you and I today are sitting here talking about on both sides a lot of these golden nuggets that people can now refer to, you know, years down the road after You and I are never here or anything else that maybe is that one nugget that helps them get a part in life. And you know what, Sam, that may be the reason and the calling that you never even knew of you trying to be this podcast and take on this responsibility of doing these podcasts that you don't even know why you were doing it is the information gets out there. And as you present it, you can then have people to choose to do what they want with that information on how that affects their own individual lives, that's a beautiful thing, man.
1: Yes, sir. And there's just so many options and opportunity for us to, to discern and choose the information we take in. And for somebody to have the opportunity and the freedom and the flexibility to access rich information that can transform and change their life. It's a privilege that we have that. And I'm not talking about anything for me. I'm, I'm talking about from what you're sharing, and I'm talking about from all the other things out there. And you're just, you're sowing seeds.
0: You used to, generations before us you used to have to go to a library. Yeah. Or maybe your family was lucky enough to have the Encyclopedia Britannica downstairs in the basement to be able to go to volume E to find out what some. Prince or somebody named Edward years ago used to bring to society. But other than that, you relied on the stories you were told to actually go out and inspire you to do. I mean, I can only imagine being what it was like being part of the Plains Indians or where I came up from in Ohio, that the Ottawa tribes, the Erie tribes, the things are like this, that don't have these fantastic written histories after all these years, these tribes all went and existed off of these stories that the council gave them or the chief gave them or their family gave them. And in the year 2020, what we have at our fingertips for the average person to grab a microphone today and to be able to capture someone's story that doesn't have to be told now can be 30, 40, 50 years from now to do that is an incredible, great thing of science. But it is also one of those things that's very compartmentalized, Sam, because a lot of the things that we're seeing around the world and a lot of the influences that are playing out on people today are due to the advancement of technology as well. And what is rapidly being exposed to them. And the end result is, if you're not capturing somebody's attention in this way today, someone else with a microphone is doing it in this way over here. And that could be at the reverse detriment of exactly what it is. To uh, That's the information that in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, people can't get out of the encyclopedia. People can't seek that out. But tonight, they can just open their phone up and listen to somebody talking in whatever sense they wanna talk to and be exposed to that. And in and of that fact, the plus and the goodness that this platform provides is also the basic evil that somebody can take with it and actually turn that to the detriment of mankind. And this is at the exposure period more than it has ever been in the history of the world to provide that kind of technology. So this is a fascinating time period on both accounts. And I just believe, I still do believe, of these funerals that I go to in middle America, of the families that are affected by the return of these veterans who have been lost for 77 years. I said to somebody yesterday, Sam, it almost is as if you could turn the internet off and turn your television set off and walk out on the street of America And you find that things might not be exactly as it's being portrayed in a lot of ways because these kids are coming out of schools with little American flags and watching the caskets go by and store owners are walking out with their hand over their heart. And the funny thing is, Sam, they're not being told to do that. They're just watching a funeral procession come through. They look out of their store window, they shut their store down, they walk out and they just pay their respects to someone who was lost in the service of their nation 77 years ago, the news and the internet didn't tell them to do that. What was right actually told them to do that. And that's a beautiful
1: thing. Hey everybody, we're gonna take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you wanna make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last 8 consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets Jet Card. It gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888 520 JETS. That's J E T S to travel on your own terms. Where we're at today, what does the average American like myself miss? from a societal standpoint, where do you feel like we're maybe losing appreciation or maybe we're not, I don't want to ask that question one-sided for the service, the dedication, the sacrifice that Americans have had and they've done and they've given up for our nation, for our world, for our country. What's that like being 31 years in the Marine Corps, risking your life numerous times, seeing fellow Marines of yours pass What's it like living in this country today and looking at things potentially on the horizon? And what do you feel like we take for granted and what we miss?
0: Sam, there's no other country in the world today I'd rather live in than this country. Even in the present state of affairs of what people actually show you on those individual platforms, on, 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 on social media or the nightly news or anything else. I was explaining to my daughter, my, my wife and I had this conversation last night. And it, it looks as if, you know, the world is on fire and everything is happening, everyone around, right? Cities are burning. Things are in turmoil. And the biggest thing is people don't understand the value. People have questioned in our educational institutions the value of history. It, should it be STEM? Do we really invest in? Should we understand or teach what the Magna Carta was to people, or how important is that to do? If you don't understand your history, the age-old adage is you're doomed to repeat that. And it doesn't matter what, what generation or what country you came from. I was in the car with my wife yesterday, and we had the same conversation, Sam, and I said, there were people in 1967 that were wearing the uniform of this nation, and going to the Republic of Vietnam, and fighting for the cause that their country sent them forward to do. And then they were serving in in multicultural units in the Republic of Vietnam to do that. And they looked over their brother and their sister and why they were fighting. This is what we're fighting for. Even when their homes were being persecuted in Alabama or anywhere else, they were wearing the cloth of their nation. And then they were proud of what they did because they went and served for their nation. And then they came home to a country that still spat on them at airports. They were told don't wear your uniform in the hometowns of the nation that's around here. And even in some cases, African Americans were ran down on the back country streets wearing those uniforms they just fought in and taken out into farm fields and basically still strung up in trees and saying that even though you fought for the hundred and first airborne and the screaming eagles of nineteen you know, nineteen forty-four fame of doing that, because of the color of your skin, that don't make you equal the tier. Even though the person who's running you down on that street didn't serve in the country and didn't do what it was that you went forward, or maybe pulled a grenade to your chest in 1967 to save an all-white platoon when you were the only African-American soldier in that platoon. And we have men who are revered in this country wearing the Medal of Honor who did exactly that. They had given their life for this nation. That regardless of black, white, Puerto Rican, and Jew, the military told them, "This this is what we do, even though society is telling you not do this. This is what we do. In 1967, 68, 69, all through since the beginning of the Kennedy era, the type of turmoil that was going on resulted in a couple of Kennedys being killed, Martin Luther King being shot. So, when you're talking about the turmoil that's going on in the streets of our nation today, in context of the Detroit riots, in context of things that are there, unfortunately, the average younger person today has no context to put that into context. So today is the worst day of their lives. Today, what they saw on the news is this. If they kinda know what happened in the 60s, if they kinda know what happened in 1941 in Pearl Harbor, when an African American cook protected his commander on the USS West Virginia, When he wasn't allowed to even man the guns by the name of Dory Miller, and he came up to do the food service to the white officers or anything else that were on the ship, and then looked up in the air and the Japanese are bombing Pearl Harbor, and he drops that, and then he runs to man a gun to shoot down the Japanese who are trying to do, you know, kind of kill our way of life. Everything that Dory Miller in that naval uniform on the West Virginia that day actually told him, why would I be doing this for a society that still tells me that I have to go pee in a different colored freaking restroom that is out there? The challenges we're facing today, Sam, are challenges that we've seen in the past. And we have a blueprint on how to kind of help this out and how to overcome this. But you have to respect that in the first place. So to see people going and in our own country, ripping down statues that have no context whatsoever, and I'm not even talking about Sam Confederate statues. I'm talking about at a time period, any statue that related to anything that was here. It might as well has been Justice Ginsburg's statue. Somebody would have ripped that down three months ago. When people are on this statue ripping down spree, we have never seen something like that in the United States seep into here. And that is abhorrent to me, that someone would go out and do that with having no context to what they're doing, only to disrupt and provide anarchy in our own backyard to gain what? the United States of America is still that great beacon of light that people want to get on a on a on a shanty raft and try to get here because they hear of what this nation has provided or what they can for people. It doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, or anywhere else, we broke away from the tyranny of someone who was trying to oppress people to do this in order to do this experiment in the first place. And our forefathers who are getting blamed today to be racist or whoever they are, you cannot go and try to reinterpret what it was that people's lives and the decisions that they made 250 years ago. If you look at anybody's family tree, whether you're an immigrant, whether you consider yourself red-blooded American, that your forefather came from Boston, you did this or everything else. Everybody got here because somewhere else in your lifeline, somebody was somewhere else and they wasn't here. It was here. Whether it was American Indians, whether it was Mexicans, whether it was anybody, whether it was Canadians, somewhere, land bridges happen, all these other things happen, centuries go by, here we are that is here. And I refuse to take on the mantle that we have created something that has been bad over the years, that was not something that in its root form, not in its pervasive form or in its interpretive form, and its root form was based in goodness. And you can still exist to be a good human being today in the construct that it was that we all grew up on, Sam, that the 1950s grew up on, that the 1910s grew up on. And then what you do is, you try to look at what wasn't working at that time period. You don't eradicate it all and start from nothing. You say, let's keep what was working, and let's work on making some adjustments to what wasn't working that was here. And fighting in the uniform of this country, you hear people who are polarized about taking a knee for the flag or to do this. or And then you have the counter-narrative of veterans that are like, you know, I uh, – I had to bury people underneath that same colors or I had to save those colors and rip them into bandages to actually do this. But the end result is you hear people say that I respect your right to peacefully do that because the basis and the context of who we are as a nation allow you the opportunity to do that. But it also does not allow you the opportunity to throw a Molotov cocktail to a business owner's business in Portland, Oregon, Uh, For anarchy purposes, when you haven't even had the discussion or the open discussion about what it is, a protest is, because we are based on a rule of law. And that's not, the the bad thing about it today, Sam, is this. It seems so polarized that when you just talk some common sense with people, they believe that you belong now to one party or the other. If you put an American flag on on your front lawn, you must be a Republican, just because you did that. That's not the truth. Or if you attend the funeral of somebody and you're wearing the cloth of this nation, that you just must be this person. That's that. Absolutely not. The beauty of this nation is we are made up of everyone that has contributed to that fabric of that. And we are going to need everyone in the future to continue that because there are great adversaries that are out there on the horizon that want to take away that life. And what those adversaries, whether they are russian whether they are chinese whether they are the is state that is an ideology that basically says if we run rampant we don't really care about killing people in the united states we want to kill everybody that's out here and that's not just the united states the context of the understanding of that is these people have an ideology of regardless of what country or whatever they go into they want to turn that into a fourth world country And execute everyone that's not them. If there's people here in the United States that think that's the way that we should be living life, you're about as messed up as it possibly gets. If you believe that that's what our nation should be turning into that level of what you feel that the whole slate needs to be white clean because it's so perverted, it's out there do that. I'm not gonna believe that. This is not so perverted to that end. We are dealing with extremities. And you know what we're dealing with, Sam, in extremities? We're dealing with extremities on both ends of the rainbow. It's not just one side. It's not the other side. My parents voted Democrat for every year that I probably ever knew that they were there. They wore the uniform of this nation. They grew up in Ohio. They backed a lot of the same things that were here. But I know friends of those people right now that sit there and say, even though this is what we all were years ago, this was not the party that we had years ago. And then you have people who are Reagan Republicans or whatever, and they're saying exactly the same thing that is there. But Sam, in and of the context of that, this experiment is not so far off the rails that we can't still continue to move some of the cogs and the clock and the wheel to actually still be the nation that is the land of the free and the home of the brave. and unfortunately. The land of the free and the home of the free at certain times in our life has not managed to mean that means individual liberty as you see it, as it relates to you. It's in the general context of doing that. And on, do I think it's abhorrent that we placed Japanese dissidents in the years 1941 and 45 in internment camps throughout the United States? <laughs> Absolutely. I can remember growing up and my family telling me the story of the house that they lived with across the street had a beautiful Japanese family and the kids all got to play together. And it was just, it was awesome. And then all of a sudden the American army rolled in in army trucks one day and just said that that family can't live in that house. anymore, And they never saw them again, but it wasn't, they never saw them again. Like this was Auschwitz or Dachau. They never saw them again. They were moved to the West. They went on to do this, and these are certain periods in your life that you need to understand the historical context at the time it was happening in order to make better decisions in the future to do that. So to eradicate something or to wipe out something because you believe that that's offensive at this point or that is here, that's why we have votes, and that's why we have laws, and that's why we have that. You want to believe in that process? Make yourself part of that process. But that doesn't mean that once you do have that voice, if at the end, America slaps the table and they decided that that voice is not the one that they're going to listen to at that time period, Sam, uh, that doesn't mean that you throw a temper tantrum and just roll out on the street and try to now just destroy everything it is that didn't give you the way that you want it. And I do believe if you can show that to people, if they are open, that's our problem. If they are open, they're not saying, "Yeah, boomer, whatever you say, you know what it is." You can show them that you can exist in this construct with people, and this can work for the betterment of everybody. And eventually, you do have to believe that in the general context of things, the end result is this: as Americans, everybody has to go to work and make tanks, aircraft or whatever, to keep whoever wants to change our way of life at bay. And that's in 1775, every large scale engagement. And then in between that time, we have to rebuild and rework ourselves because the wolf is right at the door again. Because history tells me 25 years later, somebody else is gonna do the same exact thing. And oh, in the meantime, Sam, there are other these other little entities that are gonna test us along the way about our resolve, to do this 25 years from now on if we still have, it, if they're still believe in what they believe in. And the end result is we have to fight in five or six other little crappy engagements around the world that people try to take advantage of us over the years to do that. And then the next thing is 25 years from now, unfortunately, I'm not Nostradamus, Sam, but my grandson, your children, everybody else are gonna to have to do the same thing for this nation. Because the blueprint already tells me that's what they're going to have to do. It it, it isn't Democrat. It isn't Republican. The world forcing factors that force us as a nation to protect the homeland or protect what we have to do, the blueprint since 1775 and even before, tells me that in the year 2045, we're going to have to do this. And then if we survive that in 2072, we're going to have to do this again. As long as we are the land of the free and the home of the brave, because there are other people out there that don't like that. They don't like that their kids can grow up the way that they grow up. They don't like that they have the opportunity for an education. They don't like that they have the opportunity to do other things or to make a living or to do what you said. I don't know why I need to do this podcast, but I need to do this podcast. You don't get to do this podcast. There is no free speech China. That's out there that says that Sam gets to go on a podcast today, just talk about whatever Sam wants to do. And there are entities that are out there that believe that we should be restricting that kind of speech here in the United States. And you know what, Sam? I can only be responsible for what happens on my watch, not for after I'm in the grave. And I can't be responsible for what happened before. But I damn sure need to be responsible for what happens on my watch right now. And that goes back to. The same root basis, looking myself in the mirror every single day to say, when I go to bed tonight, did I do something to make this a little bit better today on my watch? And until I'm in the grave, that'll be my entire mission in life. The end of Vietnam, roughly around 1975, when the embassy's overrun, American helicopters are lifting off the last troops, and we're kind of saying the 10,000 day war is closed, it's here that started the next interwar period. In that interwar period since Vietnam, we have fought in places like Grenada, Lebanon, Haiti. In 1991, uh, we suited back up and went to Desert Storm, and we had to mobilize everybody. So you're talking about 1975, 85, 95, within that 20 year window, we mobilized for Desert Storm and set everybody to war again. And then after we came home from Desert Storm, we started Somalia, 1993. We started Haiti. We started these other little small things. The Twin Towers falls in 2001. And then we're in full-scale warfare in 2003 in both Afghanistan and Iraq. That starts kind of the clock on the next full-scale warfare. We've been at war, Sam, for 20 years and that whole theater. But the problem is, 2003 to 2007 is when we were really at war. That means we were fighting in Afghanistan, full-scale warfare. We were fighting in Iraq, full-scale warfare. And every uniformed person that was wearing the cloth of this nation was at war, Sam, everybody. You were either coming or going. There was nobody getting out and not going to war from 2003 to 2007. After 2007, it's when we started downsizing everything, and we started saying we're only going to be in limited scale in Iraq or limited scale in Afghanistan. Then IS starts happening. It's out there. ISIL and the caliphate. And now we're going to fight this rogue startup bunch that's over here that's threatening everybody in the world, not just the United States. That's that small little war that's starting to happen in between that. So in my opinion, 2007 was when we closed the door on the 20 to 25 year chapter and started fighting the small engagements till now. So if you start with 2007, you have 2017, 2027 is 20 years from 2007, right? Seven, 17, that. Now you're in the window in 2027, 24, 27 time period, when we're already posturing, looking at what the next greatest threat is, it's going to suck everybody in the United States to go to war again with these major powers. And here's the deal, Sam. While we have been fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq, or since the Twin Towers' tale in 2001, it has taken all of our financial and everything else resources to do that for the past 20 years. That means that we haven't hardly been building new ships. We've had to patch up the old ships. We've had to do whatever it took to keep the planes flying, to keep whatever it is. And we didn't ask the nation to melt down pots and pans or ration their gas or buy war bonds to help support any of that over that. We basically took all of our WASTA that we had in 2001 and started borrowing money, doing whatever we have, and sucking that completely dry to fund this for the past 20 years. In the meantime, China was not fighting anybody. In the meantime, the Soviet Union had collapsed at the end of the 80s and had now completely rebuilt their arsenal since and turned it into Russia. And they're not fighting 20 years of warfare like we are. So as we're depleting everything, Sam, they are building and getting stronger and stronger as we are fiscally going broke. And as we, our hardware, our tools of war and everything else are getting used, abused, and all this for the past 20 years. While Russia, China, and those others have been building brand new equipment, increasing the recruiting, and also getting finances. To rebuild their entire nations to a stronger strength. And eventually they're going to get to a point where they slap the table and make the decision that now is the time, more than any time in the past 100 years, to start joining forces or start doing whatever to do what it was that we couldn't do collectively for the past 70 years. And that is whether deploy forces from their own shores, because two different uh, Oceans and a non-belligerent country in, in, in both above and below us has basically protected us for a lot of years of our location. And they couldn't project power. They couldn't do whatever they had to do. Nowadays in 2020, power projection is not the physical hardware you can send to somewhere. They are already projecting power projection in the Internet, in changing the thought methodology of people in changing the educational institutions of the thought process. And basically, Ronald Reagan said years before, we will never be taken down by an outside entity. We will be taken down from within our own borders first because we will become morally and ethically corrupt within our own borders and it will make it very easy for an adversary to come in here and take over what it was that they could not militaristically to do that. Sam, people have been doing that for decades now where they cannot face the American military on the battlefield, they face them in the financial sector. They face them in the oil fields around the world on how dollars are equated to American barrels. Right now, American barrels of oil that we produce or we buy from somebody is bought and sold in U.S. dollars. If the world economy wakes up one day and says, we're going to start changing that to rubles or something else like that, you then have to buy the currency of another nation to then go buy the commodity that it is that you used. You can't just go to the American treasury and start cranking out greenbacks that you don't have a gold reserve to do in the first place. It's exactly what kills inflation on nations for the war. It's basic economics to do that. So you have a lot of these nation states that are out there saying that people just don't understand. They believe that nobody's going to bomb kansas they're not going to do this or they're not gonna... yes they might take a tactical car bomb in the middle of nebraska and do something akin to 2001 but if you study sun tzu and everything else and thousands of years of methodology it always starts with what can we do to disrupt somebody before we ever have to put one of our people there to actually put them in harm's way this is methodology that goes on thousands of years of principle Why send a human being where I can send an arrow? Mm. That's medieval combat with crossbows. Scaling ladders, that was great until somebody started boiling pots of oil down scaling ladders. And then that changes your methodology. But it's always humans having to combat humans in a military sense. The combative nature of warfare as it is today has already started in its most rudimentary form even back before some of those crazy movies like Dr. Strangelove from Peter Sellers that are funny and comical, but they're rooted in reality. And then it goes into your Matthew Broderick 1980s movie like War Games that said, would you like to play a game? And the game turns out to be thermonuclear warfare. It's like, wow, that's even really before the internet happens, but they're actually making movies of that at that time period. Well, movies in their farce state a majority of them are rooted in some sort of concept and reality to make that movie in the first place. And we are talking about the early 80s when people were talking about electronically disrupting people on a warfare platform to do this. And it was in an atomic scale then. Now it's as much as social media platforms logging into Facebook, Twitter. It doesn't matter who you're on. You're not, it's not a closed loop anymore. Everybody in the world has access to doing that. And today you're hanging your pictures that you're having a great life and you're doing this and you're, you know, I got to ride this or I got to do this. That picture today sends a message to somebody that says, this is the way of life that that person has that I don't have. And I want what that person has. So you know what? I'm not going to force them on the battlefield. Uh, I'm going to do what I can do to hack into their bank account today and steal everything that they stink in half before they even have the money. To do this and they can do it in 20 minutes to do this like this which makes the world more dangerous today than it has ever been in the past with the generational influences that we have right now which means that america in the future is going to have to have that kind of dominance in that sphere long before it has to ever put a rifleman somewhere to face an enemy combatant somewhere else These countries will try to do whatever they can do to disrupt our way of life in America. And they have done it in news medias. They've done it in the internet. They've done it in our educational institutions. And they've done it in the most rudimentary form of just the phones that you have in your hand today. Almost there's a 100% good chance that every component in that phone was not manufactured in the United States of America. So the components that are in those phones or anything else are components that were placed into there years ago that you never just don't even know until you have to know what that closed loop is. And these were challenges that we didn't face 70 years ago, Sam. It's a new way of doing that. But if we're actually sitting back here thinking that we can rest on our laurels in the United States because we have defeated all of these things before— we sit here with the oceans on our left and our right and Canada and Mexico below. And we can sit here with the basic assumption that we will have guaranteed results in the future, just like we have in the past because we never really faced an adversary that we could not defeat. When you have that thought process in your life that you don't try to modernize what it is you're doing. And you just think that the the success that you're going to have in the future are only based on the successes you had in the past, no corporation in existence on a military scale will ever be able to survive. If Henry Ford was still producing Model Ts today because they were just such a success, but somebody walked into the factory and said, three years from now, the Americans are not gonna wanna buy Model Ts. They're gonna wanna have this. They want more engine power. They wanna do that. And the greatest thing of America That truly tells me, Sam, that it's still gonna work the way it is. Is when Americans have had their back to the wall and Americans had had to be asked to melt down their pans. Women had to be asked to give up their hosiery to make parachutes for people on June 6, 1944, so that the men could have parachute material rather than women have stockings here in America. The American people, when called upon through history, We'll bond together to defeat any adversary that is ever trying to change our way of life to do that. And these things that we have going on today where people say, it's another civil war. You know, if this doesn't happen in this election, then this is going to happen. That's over here. Don't discount the people that are somewhere in between those two at the time that they need to actually wind up and quell and say, you know what? smoother heads here are going to prevail because we have bigger things to worry about right now. Don't let somebody do this to us. In other words, do not let us do this to ourselves. If I have to do somebody or I have to face an enemy combatant, mono a mano, or my grandson has to down the road, let them face the enemy combatant, mono a mano. But don't take away their tools, skills, heart, discipline, desire, motivation now in building for that next 20 to 25 year fight that I know is going to happen and it's going to have to be their generation that does that because how we build them now, Sam, and how we build them for the past 250 years is going to be the same way we need to build them for the next 25 years to have that heart, discipline, desire, and motivation to still carry the day. Regardless of what you said were distractors along the way or what I said were outliers that people had the battle that America is going to have to fight in 25 to 30 years is going to be the greatest battle that America has had to fight. It's not going to be World War II. It's not going to be that. It's going to be the greatest battle that everybody could not have foreseen. But we have to prepare both militaristically, mentally, morally, physically, to be able to shoulder whatever that is, Sam. And to also say this, and the last thing I can probably say on that is, I grew up You never badmouth the home team. You don't have to know what that is. That's your hometown. Uh, I got people who are from different ways of life that that they're from Ohio, but, you know, they're Michigan fans or they're anything else like that. Nobody's dying on the football field. But a few years ago, we had people in the country music industry, Sam, that were some were making very pro-American sounds. And other ones who were very popular were making very anti-American. And the funny thing is country music, hearing of that, has never really been an anti-American statement to do that. So when you go out and you start doing things that's counter to what that culture is, you cannot then go back in and claim a victim of why things bad are happening to you because you want to get the narrative of a certain way of life that, that you were doing. But you should have probably never trudged down the way of life in the first place, because if American troops are on foreign shores and we have to deploy those troops that are there, you may not want to be one of them. Somebody's got to do that. And they are the home team. And they are still the ones that project power to try to free the oppressed that are out there. Do we have some bad actors, Sam? Yes, we do. That's not the whole US Army as a whole. That's one guy that did something, the US Army. So that doesn't mean you layer that that one person did this and that means a million other ones think like that person. No, they don't. That's ludicrous. But when they go and they mount up and you have to put them on planes to go protect your homeland, protect things like that, you don't badmouth the home team, man. You always side with the home team. You don't go and stand in front of a hospital in Los Angeles and scream that I hope those cops die. You you might not wanna believe in, you don't wanna be a police officer, I get it. You may have something in your life that happened to you personally that you have something against police, but there are millions of other stories out there that worked out good for people showing up at the last minute before someone was killed, before something like this. But a majority of people who have their faculties about them, regardless of where they come from, if that is proven to be an undoctored thing, because we know in day and age you can doctor and you can overwrite people's speech, you can make, if that is proven that the average person that believes in humanity, regardless of what side of the fence they fall on, Sam, believes those actions to be abhorrent. That anybody would say that towards another human being in the first place, regardless of what that individual had, had done. We're not talking about people like Jeffrey Dahmer walking the streets. We're not talking about the John Wayne Gacy's that went out there. We're talking about people who put on a uniform today, kissed their family goodbye, went and did the job they were told to do to do what it was. And then someone decided today, I'm going to change your way of life. Whether you believe in the actions that that did that put those officers in the hospital in the first place, you know what? Who am I to to say what, what you believe or change your mind to do that? But for somebody after that person is then fighting for their life inside there, who put on a uniform to do and go about goodness that day, and for somebody to stand out there that had nothing to do with that scenario whatsoever, and then say, I hope those individuals die, that they do that. The average American that is out there, regardless of what side of the fence you should fight on, should honestly look at each other and go, uh, Yeah, that's not the way I can feel. And that is the Americans that should come together as close as they can. The best things that I see right now in the news that are happening is the news narrative of Justice Ginsburg's relationship with Justice Scalia's relationship. And I actually knew Justice Scalia. So I knew the type of man he was. He used to come down and teach at the Marine Corps universities. I knew his boisterousness, his love of opera, you name it. Just a good human being to be around. And for the narratives to say, no two different human beings have existed together, then those two views on a lot of things But on every given day, the respect they had for each other and the genuine love they had for each other as counterpoints and everything else is truly the model that our founders were discussing up front that said dissident values can go back. I don't have to believe in everything you believe in. You don't have to believe in everything that I believe in. Uh, And we have a system that does this. But you know what I do believe in? I want to see the goodness in your family, Sam. And I want to see your community, your spouse, anybody else succeed today. And I want them to have that opportunities. And what Justice Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were saying were they dedicated their lives to this thing that basically said that the balance of what a Supreme Court was is rooted in different opinions at the highest level of the court. So when these things do come up, you do not have a one-sided view or another side of view. You. you can actually, people who respect each other and are a true friends in life can still sit there when it's their job to go, I don't agree with what you're saying today, and we're not going to make that decision today until you sway me to whatever. I think it's a beautiful narrative that is getting hidden right now. The relationship between those two should be the uber narrative that is happening in America not that we just lost this Supreme Court, so now this side can now plug this one in to do this. That's the subcomponent that neither of those two justices would have ever wanted to be wrapped up in.
1: I noticed on 9-11, I've noticed this years before previously, but it's refreshing even though it's so sad that it had to happen in the first place. And so thankful for our troops, our soldiers, even the people today, first responders on that day, the sacrifices, even the people that are heroes that weren't even a first responder or not in armed service. But it's like one of the few days of the year where people feel united and they're posting pictures. And even though it's it's tragedy and it's sad, but it it's that unity that I feel like you're describing. And it's it just feels like that one day is a day where people are grateful and thankful. I'm curious... Is it almost an impossibility, do you think, as a society and a culture, to have gratitude, to have thankfulness for our soldiers, the men and women that have sacrificed their life, given up everything to protect us? Are we almost unable to really have that gratitude and live in harmony as a nation unless we have a war every 25, 30 years, as you said? Would we always just gravitate towards a place of self-centeredness, manipulation, Unless we didn't have that, like you've talked about where we have to come together, we have to experience humility, where we have to sacrifice and where people that go, that don't want to do what they're doing, but they believe in the higher purpose and in the calling of it, that they give up everything to go do it. Do you feel like, does, is that kind of like a, something that kind of levels the playing field periodically throughout our country's history that, that produces that?
0: And Sam, I think it, it levels the playing field in life in general, regardless of America or anywhere else. But if you really look back in your own life, you know, you and I have never met that we're on there, right? This is the first time we ever really, other than a couple of email exchanges, had a discussion. But what you can look back on your own life or anybody's life is the things that you honestly can look back in your own life that you cherish the most are not normally the things that were given to you without having been earned by hardship in your own life. It's whether it's your college degree, you had to put in the hours, you had to earn this. It's that Eagle Global anchor for Marines. It wasn't just given to them. They had to earn it. And they had to freeze and they had to do nasty things along the way in order to do that. The reunions that you have in life with people that you meet up and you intersect with in life are not normally the people that you just had a great night out on the town watching a ball game in San Diego it's normally somebody that you experienced something that you went through your life with 20 years ago that really ingratiated you to each other. They said, no matter where we're at on our path in life, we're always going to care. We're always going to look out for each other. And I do believe hardships in life are, and, and traumatic things are what do that. It's what weave the context of the nation. But no. That is not the main catalyst that says we have to continue to live like that in order to exist. We don't actually constantly have to exist in a state of perpetual chaos in order to do this. When I went back last week to bury a Moraine in his hometown of Richmond, Indiana, after 77 years of being gone, I took a young lady with me that's one of our scientists. And she's never served in the military, she's 27. And the night before we were going to do the wake, it was really close to where I grew up as a young man. So I had committed to speaking to the high school football team in that town. And I just told them, don't tell anybody I'm coming home. I'll just roll in there really quick, speak to everybody, because if people know I'm in town, then I want to have dinner over here. They want to no, don't tell nobody. And the coach said, "Okay," And I had her ride along. It was about an hour north of Dayton, Ohio. And we met in the locker room of a high school football team. And as you went back and started, Sam, this is not a high school football team that is from a major city. A majority of these kids are never going to go on into college to play football that are there. They just enjoy each other's company. They enjoy playing football and they enjoy representing that small little town we're all from. I got asked to come up there, Sam, because they usually do like a veterans event. And COVID was preventing that this year. So they had told me, what we'd like you to do is record something, Justin, from Virginia, and we'll just play it for the football team and motivate them before they go out that night. And I said, Coach, what are you doing this for? And he told me. And why are you? I asked him, why are you the coach of that team? You're not from Columbus Grove, Ohio. Why does this matter to you? What is this? What is this? And I let him talk for 20 minutes on that explain to me how he came up with this and what he'd like to do. And the VFW just bought all the jerseys for those kids. And all those kids are going to be camouflage jerseys for the first time. And then normally that high school does not allow, it's almost like Notre Dame everywhere else. You don't get to put the name, your name on the back of a jersey. because You represent something bigger, right? And when I was a kid, that's because you didn't get to keep those jerseys. Because the school could only support so many, and you had to give it to somebody else next year. <laughs> Your name couldn't go on it. So I looked at these kids sitting in these seats, Sam, and that young lady was sitting with me. And she uh sat there and I, I gave a speech. And what the coach actually did was he had every single high school football player stand up and tell everybody what was the name that was on the back of their jersey because they allowed them to put a name on the back of their jersey? And why did you put that name on the back of the jersey and who are you playing tomorrow for? And it wasn't allowed to be you, it be somebody else. One by one by one by one, Sam. They went around that from freshmen to seniors. And a lot of those names were kids I went to high school with and I knew their parents now and now these are their kids. They stood up and said, I'm playing for my grandfather, who was in the United States Army for two years from nineteen sixty-six to nineteen sixty-eight. And they'd show the name on the back of their jersey. And then they'd sit down. The next one would stand up. I'm playing for my cousin who was a US Marine in Quezon. He'd stand up. The next one would stand up. Every single one of them stood up all 54. Sam, not a single one of them said, I'm standing up and playing for somebody else because I don't have somebody who has ever served in the military in my family. And it didn't hit me. It really didn't. Then the coaches went, and they said who they're playing for. And there is a coach that is on that team that was almost in his 80s against this young coach that's standing up here. And that coach is now the assistant coach to the head coach who used to be a player when that guy was his coach. And now that he's the head football coach who taught him how to play football, he went and brought him back to be an assistant coach on the team to advise him on how to help this. And that coach stood up and said, my father was at the Battle of the Bulge. Wow. Okay. And everybody in that thing had someone in the military And it tied it together with this older coach who took it all the way back to World War II that fought. And on our way back driving to Dayton, I could tell that young lady was changed. And she was sitting to me. I said, so what's on your mind? And she goes, did you see that every kid that stood up, every single one of them had somebody that had worn the uniform of the nation that was an immediate family member, brother, sister, uncle, grandfather, parent, not my fifth cousin's best friend's roommate used to be in something. Every single one of those kids had somebody in the past 70 years that fought for this nation. And when I got up and talked to him, Sam, I took them and introduced them to the people in their own families. They never knew existed before that from my generation because they're all buried in the graveyard on the outside of town with veteran's headstones that told me they fought in World War I, Spanish-American, the Civil War, and we even have a Revolutionary War soldier buried on the outside of that town that still has the name of a kid that's wearing on a jersey that's in there. And none of those kids knew that. Their timeline was only as far as their family. So I got to come back in to be the connecting file for 250 years to show them How far back that town, even before they were incorporated, people left that town to defend this nation. And then tie it in, Sam, is that is one 2,000-person town in America that is hundreds of thousands of little towns just like that in America that people don't know. And I'm here to tell you, Sam, that's why I know that we're going to be able to perform in the future just like we have in the past. Because those hundreds of thousands of little fabrics that all weave together that the average person don't hear about every day inspires and puts the fire in them to make sure that everything don't go to Planet of the Apes on their watch. Meaning that was what I had said before. I can't be responsible for what happens after I'm gone. And I can't be responsible for what happened before I entered the scene. But I can be responsible on my time period to say, that whenever I went to warfare, I came back to Bangor, Maine. I came back to flags waving, appreciation of the American people, and I came back as a winner to do that. And I want to see that succeed many generations after I'm long gone here. And I don't want to be the person that sows the seed of dissent. I want to give people the tools and the choice to say, when you are presented with a problem that you are going to have to face, unlike any that we have had to in the past. Please go back and do your research before you commit people's lives to your decision on what you have to do, because the past 250 years has told me there are no new problems. If you just pick up that old book that's over there, open up the pages, you're going to find out somewhere somebody had that little bit of a problem, and they're going to show you how they dealt with it at their time, and you may say, well, that was 1815, and that was... That was Napoleon, and that doesn't relate to me. I don't have this. But if you kind of read a little bit further, you'll actually relate to something that was in there that you can say, oh, I kind of get it. This is what happened when they were put to the test. This is what Wellington did, or this is what happened that was fear. and I can take a little piece of that, and I can apply that to help me get through the decision that I am today. And if you just leave all those old books on the wall like that, You're just throwing that opportunity right down the damn toilet and discounting that by having this ego that you think you have all the answers right now going into that problem when you probably don't, you probably don't even have 0.001 percentile of the answers that you could have to help you with that decision. You just open your mind a little bit to something that you're not comfortable with doing And you will find out the results will greatly exceed the expectations in your own life. So that high school football team, Sam, I mean, when I walked back in there, I I wasn't the the guy that ran for 29 touchdowns. I was Joe Schmuckatelli that happened to put on a uniform one year because they probably didn't have enough people to play that year. And that relates back to when you originally said, was this fight always in you? Did you grow up as a scrapper? No. No. I was as average as the average American kid could get and I was presented with these tools that I didn't even know I had all these years and then along my timeline I was presented with opportunities to reach back and use the tools that I didn't even know I had to apply at the time that I needed it to now be on the backside of surviving every bit of that Sam to be able to look in the mirror every day and say What can I do now to help somebody else out to make sure that they get that one tool that they may need
1: when I'm not here? When you talked about not throwing the baby out with the bathwater at a lot of different points of our conversation, could you talk about in your career, in your life, where that started to really click with you? Even to today, the application of it, I've heard you talk about the quality of all humans, all men and women. I've heard you talk about it doesn't matter the color of your skin. I've heard you talk about it doesn't matter how much money you have to your name. You've kind of blown all that up. I've heard you talk about just serving and doing the best you can with where you're at and what you're connected to. So how did you learn how to respect the foundation, the systems, et cetera, that you've been involved with, but then also try to make changes or speak up for the greater good? But how did you learn how to also kind of respect the foundation that you've referenced?
0: Uh, I learned it growing up as we've resonated, uh, whether it was in the church, whether it was reinforced out of the pulpit, whether it was reinforced by some teachers along the way, whether it was certainly reinforced by my neighbors that lived uh, on the left and right and all down our street. And then when I went in the Marines, Sam, some of these same things, like I told you about, you know, it wasn't because I was going to be a great football player. I had to put the uniform on so the team would be allowed to play. And we kind of joked up there, and I asked them, how many of you actually play in the band today? These football, these hard football players. Not a single person raised their hand. And I said, wow, that's changed after 30 years. Because we used to have to play two quarters, and then I took my helmet off, and then we had to pick up instruments, go march the halftime show, and then come back for the third and fourth quarter, take our instruments off, and play in the band. So you knew that you had to go be part of something else in order for somebody else to be able to be able to do what it is that they were going to do. So that was the town. So flash forward, the Marines. Good enough was never good enough with the Marines. We used to have a thing in there that said a minimum standard or requirement is not the goal, which means is that's not what you aspire to do is just meet the minimum standard. You aspire to exceed the minimum standard. The minimum standard only gets you in the door, the qualifications. So if we were to be on the pull-up bar, Sam, and let's just say maximum for your score today was 20. You did 20 pull-ups, you get 100 points that's on there. In your head, you're sitting here like, I got to get to 20 so I can get my 100 points. And then I can get off the bar. I met the goal that was here. The best thing and the best units I was ever in, especially when I was a drill instructor later too, was 20 was the goal you were going for. That wasn't what you could do. So even if I was a smart ass and got on that pull-up bar and ripped them out and I got to 20, if I just jumped off that bar, I got my ass handed to me. In other words, Sam, You get off that bar when we tell you to get off that bar. You're done when we tell you you are done. You keep pushing. In my head, I'm like, but I'm not getting any more points for this. But they're saying you're not going to have that mentality to where you just think good enough is good enough, and I'm done. We're going to show you you can always do more. In the reconnaissance community, it was always, how far are we going to go today? We'll let you know. (laughs) Because we don't want to tell you 11 miles, 12 miles, or 13 because you're wargaming that in your head already. You can psychologically get to that next thing. Basically, a lot of times we'll tell you we're going 13 miles, and then when you see the 13-mile marker pass you, now we're going to see if you give up or quit when we keep walking and going. Because you can watch people change when that happens. You can walk, can walk past a mile marker and go like, hey, 13 was back there. Can, can, we're done, right? It's like, no, we're not done. Well, when are we going to stop? Whenever we tell you, we're going to stop. And the leaders would look at you to know your capabilities so they didn't hurt you or something. But what it always taught you, Sam, was you can always do more. You can always put out more than your mind actually believes you can do. So it wasn't so much that if we would throw 20 miles out there. It wasn't so much that I needed you to do 20 miles that day. You may have only been able to do 17. But when I look back, you were on your hands and knees still crawling. And then you get water, you go a little bit more, and then you'd look back and you'd still see them crawling on the pavement to where you go, you're done. Get out of here, meaning you're done. Go back to the truck, get hydrated get the medic, take care of whatever. You knew their capabilities and capacities. You pushed them a little bit more because also for their own psyche, they never quit. I was told by somebody else to stop today. I was told that I can't go to that 20-yard mark. Or even the more beautiful thing, is you would let them go as far as they could go on their own. And then when they couldn't go any farther, you would see somebody else walk up and say, Sergeant Major, I got them. You go back up there and and get with everybody else. I got And then when you didn't think, Sam, that that guy was ever going to get to the 20-mile point, you're already finished. You're done. You're walking past. And you see another two Marines walking with that Marine, giving them water, doing whatever, and getting them across the finish line and getting them to a point where they never physically or mentally thought that they could do there because the end result was, Marine, we need you. Meaning... It's going to be a harder job for me today if you're not here. Meaning, I have to now do the work of two people. So you are not a throwaway commodity. If you're not here, I have to work twice as hard. So let me do today whatever I can do to build you up and help working to get you to something rather than just say, you can't hack it right now. Get the hell out of here. Because after they hacked it and they passed being that person in the first place, you know, they have it in them. Mm. So that means that you can take them back to that. And you can say, you may not physically be ready where we need you right now. But if we get you healed up, we get you doing the right physical fitness, we get you to the right medic, we do this. And I'm not going to have you out running with us for say the next month. But I want you to do these exercises. I want you to do this. Because I don't need you in the next month. I need you six months from now. The military is the one that taught me how to do that. And the Marines specifically taught me that whatever we manage to go with the fight, that's all we have available to us. Do not ever have expectations that you're gonna get reinforcements. You go to war with the team you have, not the team you want to have. So when you do that, you start looking at the people on the left and right to make sure you can do whatever you can do to make up for whatever deficiencies they have to make sure that the line is strong all the way across. Because even if you think that you're the most shit hot person out there, Sam, somebody else can run you in the dirt. So you need everybody that's there. And in and of the fact, they then inspire you to overcome your deficiencies to push yourself even harder than what you can do. Cause you won't ever quit on
1: them. When somebody when a superior, a coach would assess your capacity, try to push you above that capacity and keep letting you experience things that you didn't think that you had the potential to do. Was anybody just ever a straight up ass to you? And I know they answer that question, but my point is, could people do that effectively while being an ass and not caring about the person themselves? Or are you just Mentally tough enough, or other people mentally tough enough to where you didn't almost discern the difference between somebody that was just an ass and pushing you versus somebody that you knew they really cared about you and you want to give, give them all you got? No,
0: you actually have a, a compartmentalized question with that is of course, somebody can be an ass and get the best out of somebody. It's not making me want to give you the best because you're an ass. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's you're telling somebody you ain't got no more gas. You're a quitter. You're going to do that and you know that person ain't, and it's just driving them to not quit. I'm not, you know, the end result is I still have to have production. I still have to produce something here. Got to do that. You can't just be everybody's friend. The, the Marine Corps drone instructor is the best example of what your question is. I'm not there to be a friend of any of those 90 gifts. I'm not there to find out about, you know, who your grandmother was to get you motivated about something here. I'm there to see if you have what it takes to be a U.S. Marine, and I'm there to present you with these possibilities to get you over these hurdles and also give you what you can do. And a lot of times I'm going to give that in a manner that you are not going to appreciate whatsoever each and every given day that you reside with me, because it's going to be screaming, it's going to be yelling, you can never do anything right today, even though you're doing something right today, I'm damn sure not going to tell you you're doing something right because it'll give you this comfort level that you're not going to challenge yourself the next day. So you want them there at the rack questioning themselves at night, do I want to do this? And then you want to make sure that you know who they are enough to know the keys to motivate them where they don't quit that are here. But you also have these indicators as a coach. You have it in life, Sam, that you can't save everybody like that. There there are certain people at certain points in life that only have the tools that exist at that point in life, and you may not have the time to take them together. That doesn't mean they don't have it in them. It just means that in your toolbox that day, you can't do what it takes to get them there. It takes a lot of humility in life as a leader to be able to hand somebody off to somebody else and just say, my skills with this person right now isn't going any further. They're peaked out. That's not to say that person's peaked out. They're only peaked out with the way that they're learning from you. But if you do what you said, care, you don't want to put so much into this at the expense of these others, okay? Because they're just as important. I don't have the tools to do what I have to do with you. But I do know somebody that can. And the funny thing is, you may not agree with the teaching mechanism that that guy or gal uses they have a different leadership style. You wouldn't want to work for them for five and 10 years because you are who you are. They are who they are. They just don't go about doing things the same way you do, Sam. And we've all been in office spaces like that before, where it's just like we have to produce the same thing, but I'd much rather work over here and work over here. But the production is still the same. It's how they go about doing the production. And then all of a sudden, the best thing in your life is when Somebody comes three years down the road and remembers you and you can put your humility in check when that person stands in front of you and says, hey, uh, I remember Staff Sergeant Hugh, You remember me? I'm like, nope, don't remember you from nothing. Man, really? Soft. You try to be nice. Oh, uh, He's like, well, you don't have to lie. I know you don't remember me because I'm the guy you threw out of your platoon. <laughs> that, it was freaking here. And I'm just here to tell you this is what I went on and done. You know what? And I was pissed at you, or I was mad at you, and for all those years, I did this, and I just wanted to come over here and tell you today that you know, thanks for nothing, and walks off, right? But in your own head, if you put your own humility aside, there are thousands of other people that really like you and you helped along the way. And even though that person don't like the way that you did it, that person walks off being somebody you knew they could be but you knew you couldn't take them to the next level. So you gave them to somebody that could. And then three years later in your heart, you're like, wow, that was like unnecessary. You coming over here, but I know it makes you feel better, but you're sitting here like no one. I knew you had it in you, man. I just didn't have the time at that time that we can do that because that would have came at the expense of these thousand of other people. And I'm really glad that it worked out for you. They're not going to want to hear that from you. But when you walk away, you can say, at that time period, at this place in my life, I did the best I could do with the tools that I had. It wasn't always going to work out to be all puppies and kittens in the end with everybody. And a lot of times, who you were when you were 25 years old dealing with people when you were a leader, Sam, is not who you were when you were 43 years old dealing with the same amount of problems that were there approached it in a different way. And I've just found out your original question of doing that, that in life, the more you get those rungs underneath your belt or on the tree, it gives you that more perspective to do it. But if you were doing it for the right reasons, when you were 27, you don't get pissed off when that guy walked away going like, thanks for nothing. You really say that I'm glad it worked out for you. I'm just glad it, it couldn't have been done in a different way. And then if your buddy's still alive, I mean, as we all get older, that's one of the bigger things. Each day you wake up and hope hope your friends are still out there somewhere. You actually send him a note and say, this happened to me today. I ain't sent you a Christmas card in 20 years or anything else, but now we're on Facebook or whatever like that. Hey, man, whatever you said to that kid after I gave him to you, it worked out for that kid. And and thanks for doing that. Uh, And in the greater context in life, I believe you get these intersections like that, Sam, that you don't have to understand at that period to have all the answers, but in the end, you just basically don't do things with a nefarious purpose. Don't go out to physically hurt somebody. Don't go out to do somebody. I don't have to love you to do that, but I do want to see the goodness happen in you, but I'm also not going to be tolerant if when we gave you those tools and I found out that you went on to a career of robbing liquor stores and raping little old ladies down the road, no, that doesn't mean that that we're, we're buddies. That means that why was it you ended up like that? Because I wasn't the one that taught you that way. So I want to make sure it is, is how did you become that? And then you find out, because I've had those conversations in prisons with people to go like, this wasn't who I thought you were. And you would hear the kids say, sorry, this had nothing to do with you and what you taught. Those were some of the best years of my life to do this. And then after I got out of the Marine Corps and went back out into society, this is what I found. Mm-hmm. And I reverted back to these old ways and I did this. And mm-hmm. I'm sitting here in prison with a guy in an orange jumpsuit still going, I don't agree with what you did. I didn't teach you to do that. But, you know, feel free to send me a letter every now and then. And let me know, you know, how life is changing for you because you're supposed to be on parole in three years to do this. And I have a weird feeling that you're going to ask me to speak to your parole board to testify on your good character when you used to be really good to the U.S. Marine. But also understand is I'm going to tell the truth and I'm going to say this is what you were at this period. I can't be responsible for what happened the past eight years of your life after that. That's up for the parole board. But if I can tell them what you were like during that time when I had you, and that will help you, I will go there and I will tell you the truth of the way that you absolutely were. And it's kind of hard to, you know, find those levels of forgiveness in people to where they just don't layer this, you know, you're dead to me because you went out and you did this. Well, you may be dead to me on 99% or whatever, but I know for the next three years, you know, you got to survive in this place. And also, In society, it's good enough that they think you're going to be paroled in three years. I would like to be part of your process in the next three years to make sure you come out of this place a better citizen because you're going to be walking around in Gen Pop again (laughs) in public with people. And I don't want to see you back in an orange jumpsuit here. And nor do I want to see you committing a capital crime on somebody that didn't deserve that out here. So you can either be part of the process, Sam, in somebody's life, or you can choose to abdicate that responsibility. And just leave that person's life. But if you choose to abdicate that later, you take some ownership in and of that fact too, that if that person turns out to do some really crazy things, you could have helped them out and prevented that. Then once again, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and say, did I do everything that I could do to, to make that not happen?
1: Something I was thinking about when you were talking is curious with you and how you learned this, and I'm sure it still applies today. But getting put through the Marine Corps in the system itself, hearing your commitment, your drive to be a Marine, was there a point earlier on as you were being given more and more leadership opportunities, being given more responsibilities, when you would face other Marines, they're jacking up the system or they're not doing what's right. But you believe in the foundation itself. You believe in the overall value. And so when you know why you're there, and what you're trying to do and what you believe the good is that you're trying to be a part of, how do you kind of handle the bad apples along the way that are screwing it up? They're not going to screw it up completely, but they're messing it up. How have you learned how to navigate that and just approach that as you've seen that?
0: Sometimes I can tell you one in a very extreme form. It's it's interesting because we didn't talk about this in the context of like asking questions or anything is, I had a young Marine when I was in Hawaii that was a it was a, a young leader. And this is about an E4 on the level of E9. So he's way down here on his first leadership thing. He was a great individual. The problem was he was a raging alcoholic that was on. Him. And as long as he was in the training environment in the field where he was away from alcohol, you could count on him for anything. When he was left to his own devices back in the rear he could not stay out of trouble and the problem with that was no matter how many times you invest in them how many times you we're going to get you alcohol rehab we're going to help you we're going to all those things we talked about before not throwing them out there's there's levels so you're here now we're going to get you here okay you relapse from that one now we're going to get you here because i need you back here and you constantly did this in and of the disciplinary pipeline He's constantly going back and forth, losing rank, but he's good enough to gain the rank back in between. And most people don't. Most people, they're thrown away then. This kid's getting this back. And one of his more senior leaders came to me with the same dilemma. And he said, I'm really worried about him. And we peeked out with like what we can help him with and we can do this. And he said exactly this. My biggest worry is if he doesn't have the Marine Corps, he's going to be dead within a year. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, because in the civilian sector, he will never get the chances and the opportunity that we gave him here to succeed and fail, succeed and fail, succeed and fail, succeed again. What's wrong with you? Because he had these skills. you need." It. And I said, you're wrong. And he said, you will in the civilian sector. Because he, if he attributes to a bottom line, sometimes people will turn a blind eye to a lot of that other stuff. Eventually, it will get their organization in trouble, but they do it. And I said, in our context, though, we can't give him another chance. And I said, it's very bad you're bringing this here to me today, because what we were making was this recommendation on whether to keep him in or have them discharged from the military. And I said this, there is a large preponderance that this individual is not going to be there when we need him on the next deployment. And I need that skill deployed. If we keep him and give him another chance and he milks it along and then he punts it in the stand the week before we deploy, we're really going to have a problem because we cannot replace them. If we cut our losses now, we can get somebody in here to start training them. There is more, they're not as competent but they don't have all this other baggage that's over here that they've kind of neglected. With all these chances we've given them, they still have done this. And I said, we're going to have to make the decision today that they can no longer be in the uniform of the U.S. Marine. I'm sorry. And, and, and I'm saying it with tears in my eyes. Because I really do believe as well, Sam, that without the Marine Corps a year from now, that guy was going to be dead. Because he was not going to be able to be helped in that. And not only that is I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that. He's going to have to go into the VA pipeline or he's going to have to get help a different way. And I don't have access to that. He's going to have to do that. But the end result was whether it was the military or that, we are not a, you know, we're not a public assistance program for the United States of America. We are still required to go forward and win America's battles. And those hard decisions have to be made. Even though you love this individual, I don't have confidence you're going to be able to serve in a possession that you're going to, even after all this, I'm going to have to cut your losses. And he was in tears. We signed his documentation. We processed him out of the Marine Corps. I wrote him a great letter of recommendation for his very first job that he had. And he is still alive this day after eight years of doing that. I have wrote three letters of job recommendations. After that, when he keeps coming back, and i am changed a job, I've done this, and I'm I, and I'm dry. But the best thing was was he said, I always kept kicking that can down the road, so I always knew I had this to fall back on. Said the day that you said I didn't have this to fall back on anymore was an eye opening experience for me. And now what am I going to do? And now I can either go out and do nothing and wind up in a coffin a year from now or I can go out and make something because when you were talking the whole last three months of processing us out of the Marine Corps, our major, you and the other Marine were talking to us each and every day. Have you got your college carrots run? Did you sign up for this? Did you do, you didn't just throw me in the corner cause I wasn't in a unit anymore. When you saw me walking down the street, you yelled, Hey, how you doing? It's good. Tomorrow's going to be a better day, man. And then he would, I would bring him over, Sam, and actually have him sit with his young replacement to help train this kid and say, I can't be here on this deployment for you, but you're going to be there with my friends. You better not screw this up, young man. And he would sit there and teach him all these things he had to do. And then he would sit there and go, now don't be like me. And you're going to have a great career. And now you're hearing it. It's one thing to hear it from your sergeant major or something. It's another thing to hear it from a guy holding your job that this kid is heard that this kid is a legend and can do his job better than anybody, but he can't be a Marine anymore. But yet, the sergeant major, this other sergeant major, the first sergeant, these upper level leaders, and then he's letting me come over and sit with him today to pick his brain to get more of an advanced education. And then he said, because I don't know you from anything, but you're going to be the one that deploys with my friends. And I can't be there to watch my friends. So he said, having you trained up, it's like a little piece of me being over there with him as well. And then he goes on afterwards. He has a growing life. And he basically reaches out to me all the time to say, I didn't quit. So Major, you made me proud. Here's what it is. And I tell him all the time. You make me more proud than anything, man. You don't quit. One door closed, man. You saw it. And he said exactly this. As a lot of them say, it's how they were treated when they were let out the door in the business. They weren't just kicked. They was not here. You were a valued member. I'm sorry it worked out like this. Understand the company's stance or whatever that's here. I will help you transition into something that was here and then, more importantly, it's looking at somebody saying, if you ever need something in the future, just reach out. And if I can be in a position to do something, I will. To be able to lead somebody whose life is falling apart like that by the people who they are attributing their life falling apart to, to then years down the road say, I, they told me this, I'm going to cash in on that. And then you find out those same people are the ones that helped you get your jobs and everything else that was here. That's what you and I have been discussing about is it's not a cast off society. Because for the most part, nobody that I ever did not allow to stay in the Marines that I was ever talking to the last day in the Marines. These were not your rapists, thieves and murderers. They were just your kids that made some bad decisions along the way. And somewhere in a higher level, they said, you don't qualify now because you have too many disciplinary marks on your record. We can't reenlist you or we can't do this they wasn't the one committing these like you said these capital things so they're going to have to go out in society now and they're going to have to be good so why don't i give them something on a high note to do that and then more important when they're sitting in a bar talking to somebody or anybody else and that kid is out there saying i was i'm thinking about joining the marines this kid's now not going don't do it man they'll just screw you going just no They have turned in to be my best recruiters in the Marine Corps over the years of going, it didn't work out for me or this, but you need the Marines. Go through, stay away from the booze, or they'll tell them something, and they were your best recruiter, and then they'll give me a call. Hey, Sergeant Major, I just talked to this kid that was out here. I think he'd make a great U.S. Marine. Hey, man, you doing okay? Yep, I'm doing okay. I'll do better if you actually get this kid in because he'll be 10 times better than my knucklehead ass ever was. <laughs> and it's all how you treat these individuals. It really is. And those kids turn out to be great. Every single one of them has turned out to be great.
1: Did you write him that recommendation before those three months? Or did, is that something that you did after?
0: I wrote him a letter of recommendation after we already knew how much trouble and how much everything, when he could no longer be a Marine anymore to do that. And I instantly knew the first thing the employer was going to come back and ask was, how was he? How was this? I wanted the full picture that was on there. And with every single employer of every job that he got a job for, that I had a chance to talk to that employer, I always told that employer, here is exactly why he left the Marine Corps. This is what you should look for or ask a few questions in your job interview." That way I'm not padding the fence. Maybe he doesn't know I'm letting the employer know to ask these couple of questions because if the employer is calling me, they have interest in him in the first place. And I'm going to make sure my name's on him. So i want to make sure you're not lying out there or doing something. I'm going to let the employer know that this was here. I'm going to let this, tell the employer, this is what we did. And what position are you looking at that person to fill for your company? And then he tells you what that is or she tells you what that is. And then nine times out of 10, you're like asking these three questions. And if the end of that three questions, you still get a good feeling in your gut that they can be of great importance to you, then you would be very sorry to let that young man walk out the door. And you can be in a position to give them the chance that they were looking for. And it's not a life and death situation. It might be, you know, selling insurance. It might be something that's like that. But you find out when you do that for people and that trust level is there too. You actually find out that the corporation calls back or something else and says, we called him back in after that. We asked him those three questions. We were very impressed with the answers that he gave to those three questions. And he told us he was having some real problems that were inside of there. And he did this. In other words, he's an employee who's not going to lie to you. Very truthful. And in today's day and age with the Internet, that's hard to find because you can find anything out there to do that. And then nine times out of ten, you know what? We're going to take a chance on that kid. Thank you for that recommendation. And you find out, the rest is history after that.
1: I read a piece that when you got inducted to the Ohio Military Hall of Fame, your wife said that you are her hero and your wife and your daughter talked about the husband or father that you are. And when you read about your life and responsibilities, deployments, all the stories of you putting your life in harm's way, it just resonated very deeply just that your wife would say that you were her hero and you talked about putting family first so i'm curious how did that happen how can that be said of you how can you prioritize your wife love her love your daughter when you've lived the life that you have and when you're also traveling all over the world and you're you're very involved in people's lives you're very connected to your fellow Marines, you're connected to people that are not Marines. How have you been able to believe that and live by that? I would
0: say, first of all, invest and choose wisely initially and who you're latched up to in life and who you're going to make the investment in life. My wife and I talked about this last night. It hasn't been easy. There's times that you have to reconnect in life. There's times that you wasn't there for somebody. There's times that your daughter gets mad at you because they watch how much time you're giving to your grandson. And they were kind of like, man, I wish I only had part of that time, which it was there. But we always made promises to each other. And those promises were the promises that you never broke. And we rarely made promises. And that was always the thing. So there was never any letdown. Never made a promise you couldn't fulfill. And one of the major promises that I always made in my life is, my wife knew who I was when she had met me because she had made a statement. She had said there were two types of people that she was never going to marry in her entire life. One of them was a Marine and the other one was a Marine drill instructor. And I was both of them. So we still laugh today because I'm like 20 plus years later, here I am. Did you just think this was going to be a fling? and <laughs> a horse or whatever, uh, because I didn't meet the, you know, I didn't meet what that initial thing in the gate was, right? And my wife is a little older than I am, uh, that was here. And my wife uh, had a previous marriage. Uh, my wife had a previous daughter by the previous marriage, and she was a single parent in the Navy, you know, trying to make a living, uh, after all these life experiences that she had, right? But all of a sudden is most people in the dating scene, they're gonna discount you. You're uh, divorcee, uh, you have a child, something else like that. And, you know, that's just not what I'm into or whatever. They do that in a dating scene or even in the digital date and age today, that's an immediate disclaimer, right? I, you're not going to mention that. I mean, some people today out there are asking people their credit scores before they even date them. And, and I find that abhorrent that people will do that, right? But she took a chance, right? And I invested in that. And we courted and we dated for a couple of years to solidify that investment. And then I came home at one time and said, we need to make a decision. If we're going to continue to do this, you're in the Navy. I'm in the Marines. I know on paper that sounds like it's going to work out because it's the naval services and they're together. I said, but in my line of work, these are not compatible." You're going to be on a ship or you're going to be on the Navy, and I'm going to be fighting ground warfare. We're never going to see each other. And I said, and I need to ask you a very hard thing to do. If you love me and you want this to work, I need to ask you to go to a school that they are going to treat you like shit for the next couple of months of your life. And they're going to make you as close as they can to being a Marine so that you can serve and follow Marines wherever they go. And if you do not do that, we're probably never going to be able to be together. And uh, she was older. The average person in that class was 19 years old. And she had more than exceeded that. It was on there. And she said, okay, And she signed up and was accepted. And she went through that course. And she had Marines screaming at her like she was in boot camp. And she had other people mentoring her. And she had to learn how to be a medic, a corpsman in the Navy patch bullet wounds do everything else and now after you graduate you're gonna to go to the most hostile places on the face of the earth too not something you really want to ask your future wife to do but I kind of knew I had the right one it was there to test that with and uh, so she does she graduates she's in a lot of pain she follows me for a majority of my career and she does that same at the expense of her own career because I made rank really fast with all these combat tours. And before I knew it, I was working with general officers and admirals and I was in think tanks in the Pentagon and we want your opinion. And the Navy still didn't understand who she was. You know, why would you wanna be with Marines? Why'd you wanna serve with Marines? You know, female corpsmen are like chupacabras. We don't even think they exist. How do you do this? So her promotions didn't come as fast. And I'm here to tell you, my, my wife was more of a dedicated sailor. And I probably was at that time as a dedicated Marine. And that came at the expense of her following me. She did that because that came at the expense of me accepting her with a small child, with just counting, I don't care if you were divorced before, I really kind of like you. It's here. So, you know, this is, these aren't throwaway conditions. And you're malleable and you're working with people. And then the years go by and, hmm. I would go to combat and come back. And then there were times when I would high-five her and she would go to combat and I would stay at the house. And one of the hardest times of my life was putting her on a ship and sending her to combat, ironically, on the USS Tarawa in 2006 and 2007, and me standing on the pier holding the hand of my daughter. It was there. And looking down at her, bawling, looking on the deck of that ship, and my wife's the same thing, And then looking as that ship pulled out at my daughter, looking at me going, oh, my God, how am I going to live the next seven months with you? Right. Because to her, it's okay for dad to go and do that. She never saw her mom. that. And now she's getting to be a teenager. And now uh, I'm not just dad's tomboy buddy playing in the backyard. I'm starting to have these other feelings going on in my life. And I thought my mom was going to be the one here. That went through this with me, not you. And then you go through all that as a family unit. And I think when you do that, reminders of that helps get you through the bad times. And the accepting factor of the times you're away or the times somebody else is away. But the third thing of the three that I told you, the first two that were on there, was I promised that one, and I I would never move my daughter and give her her high school all four years in the same high school because a lot of my friends didn't have the opportunity to do that with their kids. They would stay for freshman junior sophomore or freshman sophomore and junior and have to move their senior year. They didn't even know the people they were graduating with and now that's the reunion they're going to have for the rest of their life. I made a promise when I told my daughter you will graduate from the same high school. I put you in. Whatever we have to do, we will make that happen. Sometimes that was me going and living somewhere else for a year overseas so the family would not move. And they would say that sometimes that was mom going for that time with me and her staying there and doing that. Right. And the other one was always telling my family when I didn't even think they believed it because it's kind of hard to look your family in the face and you're spending more time doing this than you are with them. But they're hearing you say that you care about them, but you're not showing it through your actions. And the military is really hard to show that with your actions because you're pulled away so much. And as you get to be a first sergeant and a sergeant major, you're pulled away with a lot of just how you and I are talking to each other. You sit down with Marines that day to help them out, and then the time's gone. And you were supposed to be home for dinner at 6, and you look at the clock at 7. You're like, oh, my God, I'm the worst dad in the world now. I miss this. I miss this. They're never going to know why you stayed at work that late because they didn't see what you were doing with that person. All they see is you were supposed to be here an hour ago, and you wasn't. And more importantly is you didn't even have the courtesy to call. You wasn't coming here. And that used to really hurt. One time my my wife said, you know, I think we can teach old dog new tricks. So you know what we're going to do now? I'm not going to ask anything of you to be here at this time. She said, all I'm asking you to do is if you're not going to be home by six o'clock every night, just call us. I don't even care what you're doing. Just say you're not going to be here. So, we can go about making plans to do whatever, and it's not disrupted and Then she said, "But understand when you do that if you do not call us by six o'clock and you come in that door, I don't care if it's six o one you delay that You better have a lot of cash in your hand because it's going to cost you every. it's going to cost you twenty dollars hard cash for every ten minutes that you're late coming in the house and she goes, We both have the same bank account, so you're not just going to say well, it's already in there." Go- No, you're going to go to the ATM and take up your time. You're going to pull out that money and you're going to physically put it in my hand and you're not going to be allowed to spend any of it when it comes. (laughs) Amazing when you layer things like that, how much you pay attention to time and other people's concern. Now it's, oh crap, that that, now an additional time of me running down the street or to do something like that. And what I always said was, understand this is the family. There are times when I am not going to be able to explain to you why the Marine Corps ordered me to do something. And they're pulling me away to do that. But if I have a choice in the matter that day and they are giving me an option. The option is always going to be to spend that time with you. They can let somebody else do that. And I will expose for learning. Sam, a lot of times you believe, sometimes you don't buy into your own BS of what you're doing. Because there were times, and I told my wife, on all those combat deployments. So-and-so's husband next door wasn't doing all those combat deployments, or the person down the street wasn't going. They were going out one time, then they were home for two years, and then they were back out again for a little thing. And there came a time in our life, Sam, when my wife looked at me and said, why is my husband the one It's always, religiously, every seven months gone, for another seven months or anything else? And she just said, just be honest with me. The Marine Corps didn't order you to do all those, did they? You volunteered for some of those, didn't you? And she said, it's not going to hurt anything else, just be honest with me. And I said, yeah. said, I didn't have to do all those. And that's hard. It's hard for your daughter to hear. It's hard for your family. Dad, you told us that if you had the choice, you were going to be here. But I had a family I knew understood. And I had a family that understood responsibility. They also knew what happened on those other ones before. They had also got emails from Marines whose lives were saved that said, if your dad was never there, I, didn't, I wouldn't be here for the birth of my child or anything. And they've got to see those where I didn't even get a scene and understand. So when there was those times to do that, I had found out that in this world, when you have the chance to give your time to someone and it's your choice, make sure you're giving your time to the right people that you do that, right? The distractors that we talked about, don't get wrapped up in giving your time to the distractors. Uh, secondly is to be honest in everything that you do. Sometimes honesty hurts with people, but it's better if you tell them up front and be honest about it rather than try to make somebody believe some bullshit later that, that really isn't a thing. And then three, you just live a lifestyle that they don't question what you're doing in the first place because they know that whatever you're doing is right, just, and good. And they know that you're doing that at the expense of the time that you're actually spending with them. And the reason that you're actually doing that is at that time and at that period, maybe your time with that other group for that time in the most harshest period in combat since America had seen since Huey City or had seen since Iwo Jima and that. Maybe that was the time that I had to give up my time with my dad so he could be there to do that for somebody else. And I've had a really cool time to be able to have a family that was uh, that understood that. And that doesn't come without trial and error. That doesn't come without an investment. You know, you have to work. There, there's this thing of love and first sight. We've been married for 77 years. It's puppy love and it's all this. And I never wanted to be with somebody else. I think that's the outlier in life. That's the anomaly. It's what we all wish when you see that couple together. But the reality is 99.99, that's not what everybody's life is is like you had said before, Sam, is everybody's life is kind of, let's figure out the shit we got to do today and get to tomorrow. And then we'll work on tomorrow and we'll work on the next day. And then hopefully you lived a good life like that. And then someday somebody's looking at you going, oh, don't you look so sweet as a couple <laughs> when you're in your seventies. And I wish I could be you. And you know what? You find out that that couple that you thought had it all figured out to all those years and looked up to They didn't have it figured out either. And they made it work day by day by day. And that's what I grew up on. I grew up that marriage just wasn't a contract in a castaway society, it was a commitment. And I'm not prone to people who get divorced either. Some things that, why should you go through life just being absolutely miserable because of something that was on there? Or you quote here, we're just staying together for the kids. Well, I hate to tell you, after a while, your kids figure out that life could be probably a little bit better. If, they, uh, if you went off and married somebody else and he went off and married somebody else, and now they have all these extra Christmas presents coming in and their life's a little bit better and they can make this cheaper by the dozen situation work rather than sitting there in the house listening to your term miserable argue for the rest of their life. Until they get to be 18, they don't know any different. And then they're wondering why they can't have any of their relationships work years down the road because they don't have parents who can talk to them about what reality is in life and it just comes down to having those discussions and i'm fortunate enough to be able to live through the things that we did to be on the backside to be able to have those kind of discussions because i still look at people older than me and they're my heroes people who are 80 90 and 70 that's made it through the trials of life those are the, those are heroes to me because they've went through all of this And they managed to survive and they managed to provide for somebody. They managed to do it. And you know, it wasn't an easy ladder to climb for any of them to do that. But I really do believe just like sitting in the park bench with some of those people who were just, just fortunate in life at that time period, it doesn't matter who you are in life. You can learn something from everyone in life. I learned that I didn't want to be like that. That was one thing I learned. I also learned that they actually cared. And they actually looked at me after a conversation and said, you don't want to be us. Take your ass back in that building and doing something with your life before you make bad choices that end up like where we're at. And those are the things that make up kind of how you and I got to where we're at today (laughs) the conversation. really is. I wouldn't change any single one of them, even those tragic ones, Sam, because you never know what that would have changed somewhere else. We are who we are and we're a makeup of, all of our experiences at this point, both good and bad.
1: Hearing you talk about your marriage, hearing you talk about all these different experiences, challenges, opportunities, the powerful thing about just the application of what you're saying, even here, and I've even seen it in just my marriage, and I'm only, we're five years coming up in mid-November. But when I surrender my ego and I try and I, except the fact that I made a vow to my wife and that we're supposed to be together. And I also try to think about all the good things that have happened because of our marriage. Everything else takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. And at my darkest moments, as pissed off as my wife is at me or as nervous as she is about some situation, I know she's there and I know she's in my corner and I've seen just in our five short years, how, the snowball is just building, and there's always, it seems like, an opportunity to get to work and to start trying to move the needle on how to improve or work through the relationship, but it's it's when I take it one day at a time, and what you were saying earlier, with so many other things that we've talked about, and I think it's just very powerful ending it here, hearing you talk about your marriage, hearing you talk about the honesty of it, hearing you kind of blow up. This blissful perception that we think that we need to have or we want to test or trial to find the right perfect partner, and everything like that and that 's just not reality and then to hear you talk about who you look up to, all the things that you 've done in your life, the reputation you have, all of your awards recognition, but then to hear you talk about the people that you look up to are seventy eighty ninety, and you don 't care how famous they are or how famous they aren 't there 's things that you see in their life that resonate with you and that's who you define your heroes as. And I think that's what makes a podcast like this beautiful is that it's relatable and it can be just understood and connected to by anybody, any listener. And it doesn't matter if it's a plumber, a high school football coach, an electrician, an executive, a soldier, it doesn't a Marine, it doesn't matter. And I think it's pretty incredible that I've got to spend this time with you this afternoon and I'm very grateful for it.
0: Well thank you again Sam for the opportunity. Uh, It's been great talking to you and uh, best of luck in everything that you're doing over there.
1: I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you like the show, please rate it and leave a review. Also, I have a weekly newsletter that comes out each week with the new episode, show notes, and more. You can sign up for this newsletter at com. Have a great day.